0: Welcome to the Film Seekers Podcast. Mainstream, art house, vintage, and documentaries. We bring news and reviews of big screen productions to your earbuds. We seek films. Now relax and enjoy the show. Show.
1: Hello and welcome to episode number 10. And this week we will be talking about Jizo Itami's Tampopo, along with the latest film news, festival news, and also we will be dissecting the UK box office top 10. This is the Film Seekers Podcast. Hello, welcome. We've made it to number 10 of all places Uh, we didn't think we'd get here but we are um and this is me neil ramji behind the controls as usual the leader of film seekers leaders a bit of a political word to use but i'm joined by someone a bit different today and that is jonathan e fry are we going to go with johnny fry or just john fry just there's no jonathan i'm just a john he's just a john an average john no no (laughs) John is a very special person uh, uh, who has been on the podcast before we've interviewed him he is a steady cam operator one of the leading steady cam operators in the UK and he's kindly joined me to uh, go over this uh, film that probably is a little bit out of your comfort zone of normal watching John
2: yes it's not necessarily the sort of film I would I would see come up and and think I want to watch that but that's the genius of uh, our collaboration over the years now is uh, you introduced me to some things that, that I wouldn't usually <laughs> that aren't usually on my radar and I've without exception I've um, always enjoyed them
1: and that's the brilliant thing behind the Film Seekers brand and I guess the podcast is that it's seeking out films that you wouldn't normally look into and, and going into those nooks and crannies of the film world and you know there's a wealth out there outside of the blockbusters that are always shoved in your face through PR and advertising and the idea is that we may encourage you to go and see something perhaps today we're looking at Japanese cinema you may go and discover some Japanese cinema that's not been on your radar before and this may encourage you or may deter you depending on your reaction to the film just to go and explore something a bit different out there and so that's that style brand you can contact us in the usual ways via twitter at film seekers on facebook.com forward slash film seekers. we are on instagram we occasionally post some photos on there and we are film seekers or one word on there as well you can also drop us a line hello at filmseekers.com if you want to send us in your thoughts on latest films that you've seen or maybe you you want to talk about our feature film if you've seen tampopo or any of the films that we've discussed on the previous podcast why not drop us a line we're also interested in your experiences going to the cinema whether someone was rustling a paper down the corridor and it irritated you to the nth degree throughout the entire film or whether you just want to talk about the going to the cinema experience or even watching films at home, what do you do? What do you think about the latest availability of films at home, including, you know, Netflix and all the other streaming options that you do have? What does that tell you about watching films? Does that open the door to different avenues that like you haven't discovered before? So. Those are the kind of things that we'd want to hear from you. So drop us a line via any of those means of communication. John, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do, a little bit of your background for the listeners who may not have heard your wonderful interview with me <laughs> a few podcasts ago?
2: Oh, yeah, very kind. Um, yeah, well, I'm... I would. Firstly, say I'm a cam operator, which means I operate the uh, mechanical man device that you see running up and down the touchlines at football matches. Um, I've never actually done that. I, I concentrate more on films and corporate video stuff, so basically the camera floats on the platform next to you and you control that very precisely with the, the ease and grace of a human being moving know, through do an drops,
1: Do you want to drop some big names um, of things that people may have seen your work in?
2: Uh, I've done quite a lot of independent film and short film stuff. Um, most of my work concentrates on um, on more of the corporate outside broadcasting side, but I have been involved in uh, the last two series of Red Dwarf. Ooh. Last year which was quite fun. Yeah. Um, I've DP'd a series of Easy Riders, which is a, um, a show with uh, Danny John Jules, also of, of Red Dwarf fame.
1: Not not a film with Dennis Hopper riding a <laughs> motorbike on acid.
2: Sadly not. Um, no, this was, <laughs> the last series actually was um, riding around Guadeloupe in the Caribbean. Um, very nice. Uh, on the Death in Paradise motorbike and sidecar, which it's, is quite it's a an nice, interesting challenge.
1: It's a nice gig if you can get it, John.
2: Uh, it was, yeah. Too hot for me, you know, too hot for me. But um, generally speaking, it was a very interesting experience.
1: Okay, cool. So, um John's probably going to give a wealth of insight into the more technical aspects of films that we talk to today, seeing as you've knocked around on set in various places and uh, seen the machinations behind the camera that maybe some of our audience is not privy to or maybe have just seen in backstage videos behind the scenes videos on your dvd extras john's probably been there seen there done that got the badge shot the behind the scenes in some many occasions as well so yeah there we go you were you were a zombie in 28 days well, I forgot later about that. yes yeah, there uh, yeah
2: many done... years ago 28 days later danny boyle's zombie film we uh, me and my colleagues from the, the local film course got called up to play zombies or the infected in uh, in the house and you can actually see me quite clearly in the dvd extras
1: <laughs> there we are so if you are watching your dvd extras john may turn up in those on to our news for this week and we've got three points that we wanted to kind of discuss starting with i guess it's the oscars we didn't do a oscar breakdown uh after the oscars we didn't even do a, an episode as we promised and i apologize going into the oscars of picking our Winners, But we are going to look at the actual winners for that year and, and give our thoughts on each category. So it was quite an interesting year. This year wasn't as controversial as the year before. No one fumbled their envelope delivering the best film feature. So uh, no Moonlight La La Land controversy <laughs> this year. I did a quick pick of my pops uh, going into the Oscar night I got uh, 11 out of 22, which isn't oh, too bad. I know if you throw enough stuff at the wall, something will stick.
2: They were pretty much on what the bookies were saying this year. In, in they were. Apart
1: winners. from, I think... The sh- The Shape of Water wasn't anticipated as being the best film but most of the others were so we're just going to run down our thoughts on some of these and we may not have seen all of the films I have in fact but John I know you're very time precious you know you're a very busy man I'm just a layabout who sits at home watches (laughs) PlayStation and eats lots of ramen Uh, which incidentally will come up a bit later on today. We'll go through the categories and we'll talk about the people who were uh, nominated and things that may have missed the mark that we thought may have deserved uh, at least a nod. So the Best Supporting Actor went to Sam Rockwell for Free Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, also known as the film that Mrs. Ramsey went to go and see twice. Unheard of... Um, this is your mother this is my mum and she went to see a film twice uh normally she's quite nonchalant about films did you like that film yeah i think i liked it (laughs) she turned around to me in the car and said it was the best film she's ever seen and then took my dad to go and see it um which is quite a testament to the film itself uh well it
2: is yeah What now what did you think about it because reading the reviews and looking at the trailers and things like that Mm. it seems to be you know such a hard-hitting story with some you know incredible but abrasive performances the sort of thing that that will either engage somebody or perhaps push them away and it certainly seems to attract people rather more than it's pushing them away what was was your overall impression?
1: I think it's a really strong narrative and I think it's a a, a narrative that people can relate to with regards to certain things they've already seen so it's it's nothing too abstract nothing too out there so it's not like uh, last year's winner which was Moonlight which is the story of uh, a a young gay man in Miami uh, told in three parts in a triplicate sort of um, narrative this is much more your straightforward narrative there is a beginning a middle and a sort of an end and there are characters that are relatable to that you've seen in other tv series all the performances in there are extremely strong at the high end of acting that you would ever want to have as a director on screen Sam Rockwell was brilliant as the slightly racist police cop. A lot of controversy came around this film because people felt it didn't deserve to be nominated because of its race politics. I I certainly saw that come up in um, some of my social media feeds. And they said that the town wasn't a realistic portrayal and it had poor portrayals of other people's race. So there are two characters in the whole film. I believe that are African-American and they said that this, this is not very representative. And I, I thought to myself, it probably is but quite it, yeah, a representative but isn't that kind
2: of the point of the story as well. In that, that it drives know. it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and, and this gives gravitas to Sam Rockwell's character being a, a racist cop because he is not exposed to these people. Um, you know, it's a very white town, and so those those attitudes flourish where they're, they're not con, uh, absolutely. Completed. And in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of Missouri, in in, in the outback, you're not going to have huge African American populations, and you, you'd assume you wouldn't. So it's completely faithful to that narrative.
2: And we perhaps understand that more than a lot of people perhaps yes. in London because we're from Salisbury and we have you know a very similar kind of microcosm of society here, and that we have a very small. Uh, immigrant communities uh, compared to the you know the white middle class well conservative voters. So
1: we we, we do live in white middle class conservative land. Uh, <laughs> so we live in Salisbury. Um, you may have heard of us. Uh, we're known for KGV agents uh, and nerve gas at the moment across the world. That's pretty
2: much the only thing Salisbury's ever been famous for, <laughs> apart from the cathedral With the big and the proximity <laughs> to Stonehenge, which is where I um, have to explain Salisbury
1: nearby. Um, I was actually walking past the um, Zizzy restaurant that, where the poison occurred, allegedly, at the time of which the poisoning occurred. I'm absolutely fine by the way, don't send any uh, you know cards so that, that or, green
2: or, sort of tinge Do you that was just due to last night it,
1: it? it is due to yeah. last night and it's actually quite <laughs> normal it's a bit more vivid uh, than usual today uh, that's what we're known for at the moment so we are we do live in a little enclave of middle-class uh, conservative voters uh, being in Salisbury so in in terms of free billboards I think Sam Rockwell's performance was fully deserved um, he does exactly what is required of his character and as a supporting act alongside Woody Harrelson's uh, sheriff in there as well. There's this wonderful sequence where Woody Harrelson's reading these letters out, and it's such. It seems on paper like to be quite a simple role to play, but the way he does it and his affability, where he goes from being hated to being liked to being, mm, you're not sure what to feel about his character. His story arc is. It doesn't go in a direction that you think it will, and that's all part of the the film's charm. I, I think it's a really good story, well told. So, best supporting actor there, Sam Rockwell, I think, fully deserved. Other people to mention on that list: uh, Willem Dafoe's uh, "The Florida Project," uh, which a lot of people didn't like, from what I understand. There was I a didn't
2: see that. Did that? Did that play around here? It,
1: it did. It did a secret screening round uh, here. A lot of people walked out of it uh, because okay. it's a bit of a. Cinema Verite film, so it's kind of like quite realistic. The children are allowed to freeform their own dialogue for the most part. There is a narrative in there, but it's That's not so a lot of cussing. Uh, yeah, there is a lot <laughs> lots of swearing. It, it is about children living in a slightly impoverished sort of state, they're all welfare state that's they're living in motels just outside ironically the most happiest place in the world that a child can go to which is Walt Disney World Uh, you know they could only dream of going to places like that but they live in these terrible motels that their parents are ne'er do well they try their best but you know they're often in drink drugs and all the rest of it and Yeah, a lot of people came away from the Forage Project not particularly liking it. Willem Dafoe is probably the only character that you can probably relate to. He plays the caretaker slash manager of one of these motels that the central characters all live in. Um, Brilliant performance. Willem Dafoe is just so malleable in everything that he does. Uh, I saw him do a great turn in a computer game a couple of years ago called Beyond Two Souls. Uh, with Ellen Page, uh, a lot of that was motion captured, but he plays a scientist in there, and just for him to be able to turn his hand at different things is is just fantastic. Um, he was in Grand Budapest Hotel as a silent sort of menacing character <laughs> yeah. in in the background, but yeah. just brilliantly done. There was no—I don't think he spoke a word of dialogue in that entire film. It was almost like he was almost like Jaws-like, wasn't he? Because he had these yeah. things with his teeth as well as that sort of baddie menace with his leather coat and the gloves and everything else. and
2: All the menace that was necessary to that,
1: though. Absolutely. Best Makeup in Hair, Darkest Hour, Gary Oldman in the Fat Suit. We always knew that that would win Best Makeup in Hair.
2: Yeah, despite the slightly unusual, away from Churchill voice, you know, that higher register than than Churchill actually had. It it completely won people over, and I think a lot of that has to do with the makeup.
1: Yes, uh, a completely believable character in terms of that. Uh, Best Costume Design, Phantom Fred. I thought it was a brilliant film in terms of its visual output and obviously because phantom fred is obsessed with a dressmaker you'd assume that it would win best costume design if it didn't some of those dresses were ghastly but that was the kind of point of it it was just a beautiful film to watch and if you look at daniel day lewis who allegedly was his very last uh, performance on screen if you look at his character the way he's attired um, it's certainly very sharp and very dapper And yeah, the costumes were just brilliant. Uh, Best documentary winner was Icarus, which was the documentary uncovering Russia's attempts at the Olympics to sort of falsify the results by injecting some of their athletes with drugs uh, under the radar and some of them failed and hence consequently why they were banned from taking part in certain international sporting events.
2: Russia isn't coming out very well in the chemical uh. <laughs> No,
1: no. in terms of the, the, actually they're doing very well with their chemistry because they're being quite effective but being caught out for their chemistry, that's another thing at the moment. Yeah, it's a recurring <laughs> modern theme there. <laughs> Absolutely We've also got uh, the best sound editing going to Dunkirk. Uh, as you'd expect its sound field uh, for a war film is immense just to be feel like you are in Mass conflict. Did you catch this film, John?
2: Uh, no, I didn't. I've actually got it lined up on on Netflix, which I know is not going to be the best experience, audio or visual, perhaps. Okay. Um, but I'm I'm desperate to sit down and just immerse myself in it as well as I can at home. Yeah, all my friends, particularly the the sound recordists, have gone on about the the percussive score, the way that it it really completely draws you in.
1: Yeah, it, it completely immerses you in this battlefield scenario. You feel like you are on. Dunkirk Beach, you know where everything is is occurring and I, I watched it in a, uh, in a cinema with five, five, only five point one sounds you know with Atmos and all these other things nowadays. It feels a, a bit trite to say that, but five point one sound and i I've, I felt like you could hear bullets whizzing by left, right, behind you. It completely worked for that film
2: also interesting in the best sound editing uh, category we've got Baby driver Blade Runner, Shape of water, and the last Jedi, which is kind of all top. Blockbuster level stuff. Um, there's not really any surprises in there. Um, the surprise for me, in a way, is Baby Driver because I wasn't as impressed with the audio as, as I thought I was going to be. You know, we heard a lot about it before I went to see it about the, you know, the soundtrack of the film being the complete I think, And I, I thought actually, you know, when watching it as a filmmaker, I was thinking, uh, you know, cutting to the beat and mm. stuff happening in in time with all the the the, the tracks that were being played. You know? That didn't really make an impression on me at all. Oh, really? I was really? a little bit disappointed with that. I'm yeah, quite surprised I was, by that. I was
1: expecting it to to hit me a lot harder but I wasn't even you know I mean even cutting on the beat I wasn't but, really well, doing there, that there's, there's two categories going on here so we've got the sound editing and the sound mixing and then yeah. both of them actually are quite similar I think they're almost well, we've exactly got, same. we've got
2: the same contenders in in, in each both one, one.
1: Uh, what, can you explain to our listeners the difference between the two there just so they can, we can get it into our heads so what's the difference between editing sound and, 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 and the mix right. you do a lot of this John even though you hate editing and all the rest <laughs> of it
2: yeah you have to understand the process Um, so yeah, best sound editing is basically where you're, you're cutting your sound, you're adding elements, you're subtracting parts of what's being said. In a lot of occasions, um, you're replacing every sound within a scene, including the dialogue. People don't realize how much of what makes it onto screen in terms of the actor's dialogue is replaced afterwards. You know, they take great care to get as good sound as you can on set, Mm. but there's a huge percentage that... Has to be ADR, which is uh, so your dialogue addition, replacement.
1: Uh, dialogue replacement. So they they go into a booth and they re-record and they literally yeah. dub over what's being said. What so was said live, so yeah. You're matching up the lip movements to you know a sound booth. Essentially, yeah, Which is
2: very you know, which is, can be quite hard to do. Professional actors have got had to get quite good at it. But um, anyway, so so yeah, so sound editing is putting all those elements together. Okay, and choosing what to use and what not to use best sound mixing is more what a dj does so that's adjusting the levels of all those components as we're going through right um so you've uh, you know you've got your sound effects you've got your music you've got your dialogue but then there's all the other incidental uh effects and little bits and pieces and now we've got you know dolby atmos and seven to one and three million to one Uh, uh, sound mixing. Yeah, the mixer's job is quite different to the editor's job. When you actually come to composing the sound as it as it hits the audience, you know, right.
1: And and, and Dunkirk won both categories here. Yeah, I felt Baby Driver for me in terms of its editing, bringing those elements together and cutting visuals to the beat worked particularly well. Uh, uh, You know, my background is. Music is a lot of, you know, I do DJing as well uh, on the side. I love the soundtrack. A lot of the, the music in there were, were things that I was very familiar with. But oh, just, yeah,
2: I loved all the music choices. I just was less impressed by how I expected them to have slightly more um, impact in the telling of the story. So okay. they, they, were, they were they were good background music, but then I expected a little more. Do you bit think more. it was
1: a bit cheap using popular soundtracks and that sort of thing? Maybe that's what people... Not really. That on. was kind of, I mean,
2: you know, look at the age of the character. I think it's the sort of thing he would be listening to, I think. Mm, so... Some of it, I, I, yeah, there, I, was, uh, there were a few oddballs. Yeah, in there were Some
1: oddballs. John Blues, uh, John Spencer Blues explosion, yeah. and things like that.
2: <laughs> I enjoyed the film. It yeah. just the, 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 that element of it didn't
1: stand out as much to you. as, as I As I expected do you, think, it to. do you think that Dunkirk's a worthy winner out of all these? It's a very, strong yes. line strong lineup. Here. I mean. A shape of Water, I wouldn't necessarily say the sound stood out for me, but certainly Star Wars. But then sometimes that can be the point, you know. Well, if, it's, if it's so subtle. Yeah,
2: it, so, you know, the, that, that's the best thing about films often is, you know, people say, oh, I didn't notice the camera work. Well, well that's yeah. good, yeah, you that's know, point. that's a good thing. That means that it hasn't drawn sure. you out of the experience and sometimes that can happen with, then, with audio as well.
1: But then sometimes things can be absolutely outstanding and I think about the sound field for Blade Runner 2049 mm, uh, the with the that. Hans Zimmer score going on in the background and very deliberate, you know, it's a very complex film. Uh, uh, people hold the Blade Runner series in high esteem, obviously because the first film, uh, the way it immersed you in that sort of uh, neo-jungle, that futurist jungle and, and this new the one... had had to somehow do that with the new one well it had to match well. up with yeah. who with the cinematography which we'll come on to in a bit of of such epic and and detailed proportions and I, I hate using the words epic and legend you know as throwaways but it was epic like you know it, it had this grandeur about oh, you, it you ha- you heard everything that was going
2: on in those city streets and everything so yeah i mean, it could it would be so easy to to drop all the background sound and just have your dialogue and yeah. maybe a little bit of incidental stuff. But mm. both Blade Runners, I, and I count the new one in with this because mm. I really thought it was a worthy successor, really gave everything to all of those environments, visually and with the audio, which I think is one of the reasons it's, it, it did so well, was it yeah. paid attention to all those elements.
1: I, I definitely think it's a cinephile film as opposed, oh, yeah. as opposed to a commercial film. Blade Runner, the first one isn't a very commercial film either, although it has this... Uh, well source. not then but it is now it is now it's, <laughs> but, it's, but it's, it's a cult hit rather than a, a blockbuster hit I would say yeah. and uh, in, in terms of Blade Runner 2049 I think we both can agree that both tentative before its release, you're not sure why we why are we making a sequel to one of possibly the best sci-fi films of all time? Then upon its release and watching it, I can I can say hand on heart that it that bucks the trend of sequels where you get a sequel that pales in comparison to the first, especially when it's something as iconic as Blade Runner and so many years after the first one. I thought they actually matched up really well. Twenty forty
2: nine Blade Runner really was a, a, a really worthy successor, I thought, in in almost every aspect. There has been something said about it being a bit too long, you know. Were, I think it was a little bit self-indulgent okay. with the the length of quite a lot of the shots. But then those shots, and indeed the music and everything that's going with them, mm. never let you feel bored. You know, you've no, got I'm, those a always something going to on out. in the background,
1: yeah. whether audio or visually. Uh, or narratively you, you've got something going on that you can latch onto you can take some interest yeah. and you know if i'm not if i'm if i'm if the story's drawing me out a little bit then i'm 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 listening i'm looking i feel like i'm part of that world onto production design now interestingly enough blade runner nine was nominated in this shape of water took the best winner uh, you've got beauty and the beast in there Dun- darkest hour and dunkirk for me blade runner would have won that category i'm not sure if you would have picked any one out of there
2: uh, that's interesting because production design is another one of those quite specific technical categories. Production design encompasses the overall elements of design that have to be designed for the film. So right. they tend to be, they tend to go to films that have clearly had to have a lot of design input. You know, so so modern day films don't have, tend to win. Anything with production design, because mm. it's all here, you know, it's all, okay. all there already. Shape of Water clearly had to have a huge amount of design work in. I mean, the creature itself, you know, must have been an enormous challenge to, sure. to make something that somebody can use underwater and breathe and, you know, act in in some way. Blade Runner twenty four forty nine. I think that, I think I probably would have put that a little bit higher as well, purely because... Uh, every single element of that from the clothes to the weapons to the buildings to the billboards to the tv to yeah. literally everything within blade runner 2049 had to be designed pretty much from scratch yeah you yeah. Know? yeah whereas shape of water at least had some um, grounding in the real world yeah, yeah. it's got a period yeah. a period uh,
1: um, absolutely Absol- to draw from absolutely so that's production design there for uh, Shape of Water, the winner. Best foreign language film. I know you haven't seen any of these, John. I, I'm a particular lover of um, foreign language films anyway. A Fantastic Woman 1, the Sebastian Lilo film uh, starring Daniela Vega, who is um, a transsexual woman who whose lover dies and she goes on a journey to discover certain things about her lover. There's a little bit of transphobia in there, but her her sexuality is not played up to the camera and, and her gender identity is not played up to the camera either. I think mean, there's there's a slight subplot in there which didn't quite work for me, involving a sauna key. But overall, it's a beautifully captured film, a Chilean film. Yeah, I, I thought I thought it was great. It wasn't my pick out of all these foreign language films. So there is uh, the film The Insult in there, Loveless from uh, Andrei zagnievsev the Russian film. On Body and Soul, which is uh, about a couple of workers who fall in love in a meat processing factory and find out that they're having... Doesn't everybody. <laughs> 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 um, they find out that they're having simultaneous dreams in which they both appear. So it's it's quite weird. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah, they, they strike up a connection through that. And you've also got The Square in there, the latest film from... Ruben Osterland, uh, I caught uh, Force Majeure, his previous film a few years ago, uh, which is about the actions of a husband when an avalanche ha- happens and his moment of what he does with his wife and his kids in uh, in the moment the avalanche hits. Very interesting. Don't ever go skiing with him is what I will say. But however, The Square <laughs> won the Best Award at Cannes last year starring Dominic West, Elizabeth Moss and Klaus Bang in the lead role as the... It's, it's all around an art, an art installation and uh, an art museum and it's about a square basically and it, it goes on through that. There's also a show-stopping performance from the uh, motion capture artist terry notary in there you may have seen that in the film in which he acts like a monkey and it goes a little bit further than that uh, at a, a very prestigious uh, dinner party so uh, yeah the square would have been probably my pick along with I probably would have given it to Loveless in the end, um, which is coming to UK cinemas in in the following weeks. On the
2: continent, they seem
1: to be a little bit more keen to explore
2: the themes of, of transgender or gender identity than than you know than British language films have been over the last few years. Because we've also got Girl coming up, haven't we? I think it's a Swedish film okay. uh, about a, a teenage girl who's undergoing. Uh, gender reassignment. Yeah. Um, And there's been two or three others over the last year or two. And it it seems to be something that that we're playing catch up with again. Um, I say we as in... in What, British society? British or uh, indeed uh, American society.
1: Well, I would say it's more of a British issue per se. If you look at last year's uh, Oscar winner moonlight which was Uh, about uh, you know a gay a black man which um you know went against all expectations of of taking uh, the top prize there and it was a very open and honest exploration of of that character and i think it was quite authentic in, in in many ways but yeah you know, I, I i I would like to see more certainly gender identity uh, LGBT films coming from the u k We seem to be just known for rehashing war films and 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 sort of languishing in our previous achievements and I put that in um, air quotes there the, the British film industry seems to be mostly sort of churning out films that relate to our tweeness, you know this middle-class white society conservative white society and they not, not even f- daft comedy anymore you <laughs> no, know? no no precisely um, but you know that some of the big films all concern world war one world war two and I'm not saying that they're bad films per se what I'm saying is that there are more stories to be told and there's certainly more stories to be told within the UK and I would like to see more of those brought to screen. And some of my favourite women directors in the UK have brought some of those very gritty and urban portrayals of uh, lower to middle class working class people so people like andrea arnold uh lynn ramsey uh clio barnard carol morley as well they've all brought done films regarding underclass underclass is such a poor term to use whereas abroad we're known for things like downton abbey and
2: all mm. those things which concentrate more on you know the the old old old-fashioned view of of Great Britain, yes, and wait, wait, indeed, of, its society,
1: it, it, and it just feels really non-progressive, yeah. and I, I guess, well, and, and and unrepresentative as well, absolutely. And I, I think now is a time where I would like to see these more grittier, realistic portrayals of Britain not necessarily just England, but Britain as a whole, take taken up a notch. So rather than these films just languishing as independent films or art house films, I would love to see some of these more uh, authentic portrayals of uh, daily life in Britain as being commercial blockbusters. And I think there's someone out there who can do it, unfortunately. And I, it's good for their careers. These ladies who I've just rattled off as directors that I admire – have gone to America to make their films, but mainly because probably because of funding and everything else, it raises yeah. their profile. There's not to say that they can't come back and, and, and do some of these things. Um, uh,
2: again, that, that you know, talking about best la- uh, foreign language film here, maybe that's something that the, the continent are, are slightly better at doing, and that's encouraging uh, those uh, homegrown directors who are keen to tell those slightly more out there stories,
1: encouraging them to stay behind and, and make films in their own countries. Uh, Absolutely. And I do bang on about foreign language films a lot, you know, that I think there's a whole wealth of things that are missed off the radar in English language speaking films that are dealt with in a far better, far nuanced way, uh, by foreign, foreign language films. Um, you know, we, we're we going to be talking about a Japanese film filmed in 1985. There are elements in that film that we don't even see permeating into modern film nowadays. Techniques, narrative structures. I just, just think that it's a massive blind spot for a lot of people. There's this latest film on Netflix called Veronica, which is a horror film. A lot of people go, have you seen that Veronica film? I said... No. Uh, I was by these guys who did this really weird horror film that was in Spanish a few years ago. It's a film called Wreck, which was remade in the English language because no one wanted to go and see it because it was in Spanish. <laughs> and a lot of people have gone, Well, I, I tried to watch that Veronica film on Netflix the other day had to turn it off because I didn't realise it was in Spanish. I get it. You know, there will be an element of people who whose reading level isn't particularly good um, and they're unable to keep up with the dialogue and that's understandable. Someone who may have dyslexia, for example, you know, whose reading level isn't particularly good. uh, Sorry, well,
2: you know, I, I... I do occasionally get distracted, you know, by the subtitles. I, I don't want to miss any dialogue, sure. so I read the subtitles, and then I feel like I might be because I'm a particularly focused, visual person, right? Because of my job, you know, mm. I want to be looking at every element of the of the
1: frame. But, that, but that's not possible. And I find n- I'm missing that a little sure. bit. Sure, I,
2: I, but you know, that's never cast my eyes down to the subtitles. That's
1: never going to be possible if you want to watch a film authentically, because no. I think you lose something in in a dub. Um, oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, you, you lose that performance element. You also, if it's remade in an English language, you lose the film completely. I feel. Um, well, look
2: at all, look at all those Japanese films that have come over, you know, and been remade by Hollywood, and and even. Watching them in comparison to, to the, the original, with with a you know even even the dubbed originals are scarier than the the, the British uh, you know English
1: language remakes. Absolutely, some of the horror films that have been remade, just like Ring, for oh, example, it's the original is so, so creepy. Oh. There's a
2: whole element to that that is totally missing.
1: It is completely lost, and you feel and SMG, you know okay. it is. I am a massive champion of foreign language. I'd like to see. Perhaps because English is such a dominant language, I'd like to see other languages seen on, not on equal footing, but more of an even footing, shall we say. And I'd like to... to I think it comes from an early age where we are just fed American English language content all the time. And I think it would be good to have more of that content from a younger age and, and almost train yourself to watch it. Because when you watch your first subtitle film, it wasn't an immediate sort of thing. I can get it. But after a first couple of goes, you know, once you start reading those subtitles and you get into a swing of things, it just becomes kind of second nature. After yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. I think it's a little bit of a training thing and people aren't willing to give it a go. And, you know, the whole reason, that like I've said, behind the Film Seekers thing is to push yourself. If you really love film, you are doing yourself a disservice by not exploring films that are not in English language. So, supporting actress, John, who won? Uh,
2: best supporting actress, uh, the winner was Alison Janney for I, Tonya. Which I, I missed I, Tonya actually, but I, I, I wouldn't be going to watch it for, uh, for anything other than, than the beautiful <coughs> Uh, leading lady, of course, but um, <laughs> a very yeah, talented leading lady, lady, by the way. Well, absolutely. But um, uh, interestingly, that uh, the the supporting actress Alison Janney, who plays
1: uh, her mother, her horrible mother, who um, <laughs> physically abuses her uh, throughout the film, uh, sometimes in a darkly comic way, uh, but you come away from this film feeling like um, she. Uh, is 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 not a very nice character, and it does it does leave a bad taste in your mouth. Other other nominations in that category include Mary J. Blige, who we know as a singer first and foremostly. It's um, not her first film, though, is it? No, myself? she's done other films. Uh, she stars uh, here in uh, Reese uh, D. Reese's Mudbound. Uh, Leslie Manville, the wonderful Leslie Manville in Phantom Fred playing uh, Daniel Day Lewis's sister.
2: What a job to get! Can you imagine when she was cast as that and say, "Oh, by the way, it's uh, you're playing up against." Daniel Day Lewis. And yeah. you know what?
1: She holds her own 100% in that film. She comes out with some absolute stingers of lines, and the way they're delivered with such bitterness towards that character is just oh. absolutely on point. They played the a clip from it at the Oscars, and she got a resounding round of applause. Laurie Metcalf there for Lady Birds, a film that I didn't like that everyone else seems to like, something to do with me, I guess, uh, who plays the mother of Lady Birds, played by Saoirse Ronan. And Octavia Spencer, um, who didn't really make that much of an impression in, in The Shape of Water for me, but she yeah, is she, there. She completely fulfilled the role i suppose but the role wasn't as exceptional as i'd expect from something to be nominated, nominated this for this category. no absolutely not um Alison janey's character i think was perhaps uh, an easy win in this category it's a very showy sort of role and she embraced that fully well um, and you had to have that character to understand where of course tanya got her Yeah, her streak from, yeah, exactly. Uh, But I I think for me, Leslie Manville's role in Phantom Thread um, could have been played in multiple ways, and the way she played it completely fitted... Uh, that film and the dynamics between her character and, and, and daniel day lewis's character the best animated film uh, coco was the winner i thought it was a good pixar film you know has pixar made a bad film yes they have Cast two and Cast three it wasn't really up against a very strong field. there ferdinand which is about a, a bull that escapes from a it's going to go into a bullfight. Finds that the, his dad dies in the bullfight. They all think they're going to some sort of heaven when they go to the bullfight, and then they actually find out that no, actually, they get they get killed. Uh, played by John Cena. In as the bull, uh, really? Yeah, really. <laughs> My goodness, John Cena's doing. Pr- he's, it's he's amazing. He is All those memes have paid off. John Cena is elevating to not quite the level as The Rock, but I wouldn't be surprised in a few years' time as you know he will who will shake that wrestling moniker. Yeah. You know, because wrestlers previously have had very bad write-ups transitioning to acting. Yeah. You think about people like Hulk, Hulk Hogan, Hogan, yeah, who haven't done particularly well. But anyway, The Rock's just going from strength to strength. He's got he, three I mean, films out. For the slate what, this year
2: yeah exactly I, uh, jumanji is so funny
1: yeah he, he's great now he's got rampage coming out later yeah. on this year he's in uh he does seem to be trying to mix
2: serious with the comedy i would like to see him more.
1: do i would like to see him do more serious stuff mm. i would like to see him I mean, do, he
2: is hor- horrifically funny that's the
1: problem and oh but i don't think he, he should, he, you should he, stop doing no that. he's but he's always but john you're not a particular wrestling fan at all but i think Because when we, myself and John grew up together, Uh, we went to school together from a very young age and we moved in circles, uh, myself particularly, uh, where we would enjoy watching wrestling and uh, John would get pulled into this, he didn't, I don't think he particularly liked wrestling, but you would... It's impossible not to get caught up in it yeah somehow, you would get caught you. up in it somehow and you would watch it and we, we remember watching the rock you know before he was anyone outside of the wrestling world, and he was such a charismatic performer even back then he, he was
2: always the most popular
1: person on the stage
2: whenever he came the up.
1: way the way he delivered the lines yeah. he was absolutely hilarious and um, the, the,
2: the the performance was there in so much more than just the way that the other wrestlers did you yeah. know you could see that this guy was could could turn his hand to
1: acting very easily and he, had the, he, had, he always had the, the crowd in the palm of his hand yeah. at all points even if he was playing a baddie or a goodie you know everyone kind of adored him and you yeah. could see he was going to go on to bigger and better things yes
2: yeah, I must say I have not really had that same sort of feeling from John Cena but we'll
1: see, we'll yeah. see how it goes he, he, he's done some interesting stuff some sidekick stuff he was in train Wrecked as uh, Amy Schumer's Boyfriend, and he was incredibly funny in that. I have another
2: name I hadn't heard until until very recently, Amy Schumer, and suddenly she's in loads of things.
1: Yeah, um, I wouldn't say good things. No, I wouldn't (laughs) say necessarily good things, and uh, she's. Uh, an acquired taste I, I, I know a lot of uh, women don't particularly like her or her views uh, from from what I understand but she is also uh, the poster girl for uh, women to be who they are uh, yeah, to an extent and we'll, we'll just park that there the other films that were nominated in the best animated film there, are the boss baby uh, with Alec awful. Baldwin uh, <laughs> I haven't seen that I could be bothered it's on a plane awful <laughs> okay. I got, in fact I only got halfway to it I could right it, it did really big numbers a lot of people went to go and see that film uh, the breadwinner is a foreign language film that's fantastic and um loving vincent which was the painstakingly made film frame by frame in the style of vincent van Gogh. It yeah, is goff incre- isn't it? yeah yeah <laughs> yeah
2: incredible piece of work and uh we've got a slightly local connection with that as well the, um one of my friend's brothers was picked to be the model for an enormous Vincent van Gogh statue um, mm. in, uh, that's been put up in America. I mean, it's, it's enormous, this thing. It's um, got, has and, he got a nice beard? A ginger uh, beard? Uh, yes, he has, yeah. Really. Um, but he, he's, he, actually, he's a local actor um, to us here, uh, Wiltshire Dorset. He're a really interesting guy, but looks very much
1: like um, van Gogh. Oh, fair enough. Uh, the, the process behind this film was a marvel to watch. You know, they painted frame by frame. It's not just any old animation. They had skilled painters painting frame by frame of this film Cranky I think Moses. I can't remember how many frames it wasn't 24 frames per second it was slightly dialed down from that because to make 24 frames per that second would have been painted an economical uh, impossibility I'd and, and, and money wise as well you know yeah. that's such a massive undertaking but it was a labour of love I, I think that possibly from its technical aspects deserve to win best visual effects John
2: do you want to run through those best visual effects yeah so the overall winner in, in this category was Blade Runner 2049, understandable, despite the fact that actually there was quite, a, you know, an enormous amount of of physical uh, construction goes on on these films that you don't realise, you know. Um, not so much so, I imagine, with Kong Skull Island, but um, The Last Jedi and Blade Runner 2049 enormous sets and they built so much more than you you imagine you know they, they, obviously there is always an enormous amount of green screen work but some of those most iconic shots for example you know our protagonist walking going to find harrison ford mm-hmm. right so um ryan just, gosling right, is yeah. is walking into this uh, seemingly this expansive desert yes you know that incredible thing the, the, the orange mist the, the orange mist yeah that all physical all physically Made in a studio, you know the lights, incredible everything. There's there's a few scenes in that 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 have no visual effects at all. Obviously, despite that, there has to be a huge amount, and they have to work very well. And yeah, Yeah. out of those, I think Blade Runner twenty fourteen. I probably would get my vote.
1: It seems like the visual effects is more of your sort of blockbustery action films. Looking at this list of, they have to have the budget with which to make these effects. That's the problem. I suppose um, you're never going to see, you know, um, slightly more independent films because the financing's not there for it. Kong Skull Island, I think, did have a lot, as, uh, in terms of the visual effects, the actual monkey itself, the gorilla. It has to be a visual effect. Yeah, yeah. And it has to be believable. And, you know, had these helicopters flying around as well. I never got around to watching that film in the end, actually. <laughs> Mainly because I feel that it's a story that's been told multiple times, you know, of a large... Sentient it does being. lose its initial
2: interest after a while. Yeah, it? but is, People, I, I always wonder with Kong—is it mm. one of those things? Because I know Spider-Man and uh, Hulk and things like that, they yeah. have to release a film with those characters in every so many years or they lose, lose the, the rights. Right. I wonder if Kong might be that, and that's why we're getting a little
1: bit more regular maybe. Uh, out- <laughs> outings for the Big Ape. Could, because the um, the last one was Peter Jackson's, of course. I can't remember. Yeah. It was 2006, 2007, maybe. Something around there. Which was, I think, still equally as impressive. Not I, bad, yeah. Yeah, still holds up. Best editing, Dunkirk there, uh, alongside Baby Driver, I, Tonya, Shape of Water and Freebully boards outside. Ebbing's yeah, they're going sorry.
2: very. They're going very mainstream with these picks, aren't they? Really. Um, you know how, um, how all these work. I've been to several Academy members' houses. Uh, well, we, oh, were here, we go, here we
1: go, here we go. Showbiz anecdote. We well, love these. You know,
2: I, I, it's it's really interesting though because there's so many hundred members of the Academy. Yeah. Right. I would say. You know, from what they told me, 90% of the people go by the recommendations of their friends. And if you're in the circles where you're meeting the directors of these things and, and, and the stars and, you you know, you know a lot of people who worked on these films, mm. the recommendations still tend to do the rounds between, you know, within that community. Right. So you you will find that the big films that, that people have been to see or have had time to see, because, again, you know, a lot of the people in the Academy, they're either retired, so... They're older actors, actresses, um, film, film professionals, which means, ironically, although they've got the time, they don't bother to go to the cinema very much, or they're all, or they're working, which, again, means they don't have time to go to the cinema very much. So the films they have seen... Tend to be the big ones, yeah, and therefore the big ones get
1: you know a lot more votes. Yeah, and I, I think that's probably why there's large PR campaigns by the studios uh, in in the broadsheets uh, to campaign saying you know for your consideration this film's been nominated for this, and you know that yeah. might spark in those voters to watch it and then give their vote to it ultimately. And yeah, I think that's it, right it is a it is a
2: slightly unfair system I have to say because yeah. you know the people by its very nature the people who you want to be voting on these and their, the opinions that count are the people who are you know don't have time to actually watch the, <laughs> all no, the all the nominees.
1: And I think it was interesting last year where there was a shake up of academia members and the introduction of more of a representative um, uh, voting board so you had more uh, people from ethnic backgrounds more women involved uh, younger people involved rather than just these old retirees that perhaps have old values that are slightly out of touch with yeah, more progressive yeah, film filmmaking anyway we're looking at the best original screenplay there get out was the winner have you got around to watching this one yet john uh i've not actually but uh, a couple of my friends haven't blown away by it yes um i thought it was a very authentic take on the uh discomfort of uh <laughs> shall we say uh mixed Race relations, uh, something that I can uh, definitely hold a, a torch to. Uh, cinematography, Blade Runner, there in a very strong field. Uh, Blade Runner took the took the gong in the end, uh, alongside Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Mudbound, in The Shape of Water, all nominated. Of course, Roger Deakins, the legend that is Roger Deakins, finally getting his Oscar. Do you do you like Roger Deakins' work, John? You know, do you feel feel he he deserves this sort of podium? place of being the best cinematographer in the world uh yes i do because <laughs> slightly hesitant well i'm slightly hesitant because you know deacons is
2: is now a household name if you had to name a cinematographer you know he'd be top of the list you know he gets a lot van of yep, very good very good um <laughs> <laughs> um but you know he's he's got uh, Emmanuel a because he's made a huge amount of these films that have become Enormous Oscar winners, and he's associated with some of the biggest franchises in the world, some of the biggest directors in the world, and you know, some of the most you know, recognized um, in terms of awards films in the world. What counts in the film business mm. is consistency, and Roger Deakins has consistently, over you know, his illustrious and long career. Mm demonstrated that he completely knows what he's doing and that is not is a consistency that is not by any means regular or that many if not most cinematographers have you know and that comes down to directors as well you know there's a huge amount of directors who do who are seen as a safe pair of hands and Mm. that's almost delivered as a criticism but it it really isn't you know if you give your film to roger deakins it will look beautiful and yes. You can pretty much guarantee that he will, because of the process that he goes through to create those pictures on screen with the director, with you know looking in real detail at the script and what it needs. You can pretty much be guaranteed that it's he's going to fulfil that brief t- and it's going to be amazing. But also, he has the budget to make these things as amazing as he can see in his mind's sure. eye. You know, whereas a lot of cinematographers, you obviously don't. You know, it's very unusual for. I'd be tempted to guess that never. Has a has a documentary feature, uh, DOP made it to the best cinematography no you're, you're,
1: you're quite right and even though some documentaries can look beautiful as well in their composition I, I feel that uh, cinematographers are very good at what they do and perhaps that's what they should stay doing if we look at people like Wally Pfister who was the cinematographer for uh, all, the Batmans. Uh, all the Batmans Christopher yeah. Nolan films and then he transitioned to make his own film which was the uh, film Transcendence with Johnny Depp amongst other people beautiful film to watch awful film to, to kind of feel the narrative and the story yeah. A terrible terrible film
2: yeah it is such a it is a very specific skill cinematography and and quite different to being a camera ba- a camera person yeah. you know I myself have been transitioning into more cinematography roles over the last few years because it's a natural progression from Being a cameraman, Mm -hmm. you know, creating the pictures with what you've got in front of you, being the camera, Mm -hmm. to creating the pictures with the light, with the composition, with the scene, with the set, with everything, every part of what's going into that picture, and it it does become a very specific skill. And yeah, yeah, he is—he's—he's
1: deservedly the master of it. I think. Talking of directors, Guillermo del Toro—they're winning the best director for *The Shape of Water*, alongside once again a very incredibly strong field. But two newcomers there. Just want to talk about was. Greta Gerwig for Ladybird, her first, her debut feature there being nominated. I think slightly tokenistic. She's well known in, amongst the independent crowds in America there, but she made an accomplished film. You know, it's a very good film uh, in terms of its direction. And also Jordan Peele, who wrote and directed Get Out, primarily known for making comedy skits with his fellow cohort. Christopher Nolan in there as well for Dunkirk uh, as you'd expect uh, for it being nominated in so many categories and Christopher Nolan once again very accomplished director even when he's turning his hand to franchise things like the Batman series. Uh think about his uh, debut features that sort of came out the blocks like Memento and Insomnia. Yeah, uh, he's
2: he's definitely a director's director by that I mean you can people will come out
1: of a Christopher Nolan film and think that is There's brilliantly directed Nolan. absolutely it's the same as i guess Steven Spielberg as well you know these are the directors you don't necessarily go to see their films because of the stars you would actually go and see it because it's directed by yeah. a certain name
2: again masters of their art you know you they they the process they go through to to create those films you know no, i'm not going to say it guarantees success because it still depends on the script and 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 the acting and how it comes together but the the incredible amount of detail that, mm. that both of those Nolan and, and Spielberg go into pre-production, mm. you know, leaves very little chance for something to go badly wrong with the with the narrative or or you know the overall impression
1: you're going to get from their work. And I can't think of a terrible film from either of them. Even the worst Spielberg film is still damn. I good. really liked AI. I love AI let's not even go down that rabbit hole best actor Gary Oldman he's been waiting in the wings a long time to take that home yeah I think it's fair
2: you know even from his from his early work you know you could see that this is a world a world leading beating actor um, I, I you know I even his his baddie in Leon for example all those years ago but the, the quirks with that character that he put in that you think cannot have been written and uh, yeah to see him see him finally get the gong for this is uh, is well deserved I think if if not if not for the Darkest Hour for the body of work that has led up to it I
1: I think more so for the body of work for me the rather than the Darkest Hour I think more you you talked about Gary Oldman's register in that being slightly higher than that of Churchill and. I think the makeup and the effects for Gary Oldman being in the fat suit lent a lot to that performance rather than the performance itself. But you're right. Gary Oldman's body of work is amazing. I I look at films in the past like The Firm, uh, look at him playing the pimp in uh, True Romance. He plays this... A guy with dreadlocks talks with a slightly uh, jamaican accent he's uh, he's not a very l- nice character at all played commissioner gordon of course in yeah. the uh batman series as well and, and and particularly well he was in the last planet of the apes film so oh, much, so much work. Oh, yeah, he was it. in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes oh, as a very stoic character, a bit similar to um, Commissioner
2: Gordon. But, but then, also not afraid to taking those weird roles. You no. know, like uh, uh, the Fifth Element. You know, uh, yeah. what? A, what? A, I mean, if if he'd done that badly, or that film would come off any more badly. You know, then there's potentially a career-ending weirdness to that. You know, but whereas he he can, he af- really, can affo- really kills it, but he can time.
1: afford to do those sort of films. Now, I, I'm trying to think of a film that he's done recently where. He plays baddies but just does this whole shouty shouty Gary Oldman thing that he does. And he does it very he does it very well. He loses his accent slightly actually when he does his shouting. Um I think he was in Criminal with Kevin Costner, which I quite enjoyed. It was a terrible film, but I enjoyed it in a so good so bad it's good way. I guess. Um, but he does this shouty, shouty thing, and he takes these weird roles sometimes, but he's at such a level that it, does, it just deflects off him, really. Um, best actress, Frances McDormand for Free Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. She, was, yeah, always going to, that, she yeah. was always going to win. It's just a brilliant portrayal of a stricken mother. Alongside Sally Hawkins, they're also nominated. Margot Robbie for Itonia, Tonya, Saoirse Ronan for Lady Bird and Meryl Streep and uh, she has to get a nomination somewhere for The Post which she she's very good at what she does but I didn't think uh, in the whole year she deserved to get a, a nomination for that particular performance
2: yeah let's just, just talk about Sally Hawkins in The Shape of Water for a minute there because yeah. in terms of acting mm. The Shape of Water for a character
1: that is essentially mute mm. has got to be a massive challenge hasn't it? of course it's all physical acting and if your physical acting isn't on point then you know that whole character falls apart we talk about uh, films like Duncan Jones' latest film called Mute Alexander Skarsgård in the lead role his character doesn't speak throughout the whole film but his whole premises has to be a physical actor to to bring that across and it all harks back to uh, the talents of silent acting you think of people like Buster Keaton and uh, Charlie Chaplin and how, you know, before talkies became a thing, how the physical acting b- b- essentially told you the story without yeah. uttering a single word. It yeah, quite a talent.
2: I, I thought Sally Hawkins uh, trod the tightrope between, uh, you know, because you can be very, it must be very easily to be over-expressive when you're in a role that, 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 <laughs> that you can't speak. Yeah, um, and But I thought she played it with a beautiful subtlety that must have been very difficult to rein yourself back Back into, of course, you know
1: um she's a very talented actress, uh, very, very talented uh, yeah
2: she, she completely blew me away in in the shape of water. there was no moments where uh, you know every now and again you think oh, would would that character have acted like that, or would I think despite having having no voice through the whole thing her her facial expressions and everything were completely. In line with everything I thought the character should be
1: feeling, and yeah, I just thought it was brilliant. Speaking of The Shape of Water, that was the winner for the Best Picture at the Oscars this year. In once again, an extremely tough category, uh, call me by your name. There, uh, getting a shout out for uh, Best Picture, uh, a story involving LGBT uh, issues, uh, with a script written by James Ivory, who directed. Uh, Remains of the Day. Oh, really? Good yes. heavens. Just dropped onto Netflix. I wish guess. it has dropped onto Netflix. Um, Darkest Hour, obviously, in there. Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, Phantom Fred, The Post, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Um, I would have liked to see Three free Billboards taken out, but I know that's not criti- well, they, critically popular. Yeah, when it came
2: of. up to the last few weeks, they, they, were, they were both in the running, weren't they? They were. Um, Shape of Water, Three Billboards, um and, and Dunkirk you, you, which was which ones have you either. seen out of that that list there I, I wanted to see all of them I think I'm going to make uh, the most effort to see Phantom Thread before it goes off though and surely followed by the post something about the post because it's not a, a, a story or a situation that, that we're familiar with over here in the UK um it
1: sort of caught my attention a bit okay that's pretty cool so that, that is our Oscars roundup um we've gone into that quite extensively but I think some good conversation has come out of that um we're now going to move on to a couple of uh news items, I guess, uh, Inclusion Rider. Now, this this came up when Frances McDormand took her gong at the Oscars for Best Actress. The Inclusion Rider is... Well, what do you understand by the Inclusion Rider, John? I've read a few things that okay. are talking about Inclusion
2: Rider and the, 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 the overall understanding of it, I, I take it to mean that there is uh, having a specific noted-down... Um, intention to be more representative within... Uh, your your film, mm-hmm. um, not only in front of the camera but behind the camera, and I think that's I think that's I think that's to be lauded. I think that's very, that's very good. That's I, think, a, yeah. I do almost think it's a shame that we have to make a big deal out of it. You know, it's a shame that this doesn't hasn't happened naturally. But yeah, yeah it's great that, that it's, it's getting a bit more publicity.
1: Yeah, a, a lot of people have sort of taken this on board. So if we look at uh, Black Panther, obviously uh, with more uh, black faces on the screen, um, in and not just tokenistic, not just because they're not there just because of their race are actually characters with impetus and meaning behind uh, what they're doing and more representative of backgrounds that we haven't seen on screen before. Do you think, from a production point of view, John, that having an inclusion rider is something that harms talent? Because surely you should be recognised for talent regardless of your background? Yeah,
2: you're thinking in a positive discrimination
1: kind of way. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Um,
2: No, I don't, because... There are so many, it's not like going for a job and you're the only black single mother with a disability, you know, okay. and therefore you're guaranteed almost to get the job because they have to meet almost quotas. Right. right? I don't think film, the world of film is like that because the world of film is and actually has always been fairly diverse. You know, we have always had a lot of great actors of every ethnicity, background and sexuality, you know, whether or not those those things have been made overt initially
1: but isn't that isn't um, that the issue that they've had to hide it to 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 get by so you've had to dial down your sexuality to kind of kind of you're thinking
2: in 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 terms of you know great directors who have held their back their homosexuality or whatever with which there are many actors Uh, or indeed great actors yeah i think my point is more that there have always been a quite well representative amount of people working in the industry right um so simply making sure that your job uh, or your film is more inclusive actually shouldn't be that difficult. So I I, I think overall the the idea of an inclusion rider is really good um, in that it's highlighting that we need to um, be more inclusive. Yeah. But I don't think it's going to be that hard to fulfil. I think there is there is you know a lot of people out there of every different background who are already involved in film, right. um, and this is going to be a this is going to be a good thing for them. It's going to be a good thing for everybody.
1: I kind of disagree with you on this one because from me following you onto certain sets and stuff, I'm usually the only person of colour on those sets for the most part. Even in, even you know I feel that because know it's part of my, my my genetic makeup is that i i've i i do not feel excluded or anything but I, it's very noticeable that i'm the only person of of color there during any production whether it's small scale or large scale would there be a necessity to talk about an inclusion rider if it wasn't an issue in the first place
2: no you're probably right there however there's also the same equation that goes into anything that started or starts with a small team mm. and that is that you draw on people you already know and have an affinity with and if you're from a particular background you're you know you're just more likely to know more people with a similar background so if you yeah. i mean when i've been making films yeah you you've been you've come in and, and given us a hand with things yeah, yeah because i already know you it's make it makes no difference sure but then that...
1: how many how many of your colleagues have brown friends or whatever lgbt friends um or, or, or even women um that they can bring in to them rather than you know your peer group is not going to be made up of 90 percent women uh by, uh, by no, and large absolutely, but no. you know and surely because of that the representation of them in those roles and we're talking about friendship versus jobs here yeah, yeah. you know um, that that, that yeah, is an issue in and, terms and it, of... it goes back to the old boys network where it's not whether you're good at something, it's whether you know someone. And that is is a massive problem with the film industry. It is, but I think that's also inherent in every industry. It is, it is. is, You you
2: could be the best person for that job, but if the person making the decision has never heard of you, Mm. it's less likely you're going to get it. Right, it's not, and it's not a question that, of, that, that, of it's not. It's nothing to do with race equality, gender. No, it's, it's, it's who it's you know. Purely, you're not choosing that person based purely on their credentials. That almost never happens in any job. You know, you you it's very difficult to if you've got people different people going for a job particularly in the film industry yeah you pick people who you know and you trust to do a good job and if you've worked and that tends to be people who you've worked with before sure and the further back you go in that the smaller the team gets and again you get down into that microcosm of your society where you grow up but then who's who's,
1: who's who's giving the break to the young boy on the council estate who's not got hope in hell to break into that because their peer group they don't know anyone but they may be very good or very talented have some potential to be able to learn a trade uh, whether in front of the screen or behind the screen you know where yeah, where no, where, I... where, are, where are those doors of opportunity and you know we i think the inclusion ride is great we have certain quotas uh, within the the BFI have set out certain quotas for BAME applicants as well. So that's black, Asian, mixed, ethnic, uh, where they have to have a certain percentage of applicants have to either get the job or be included in uh, Within the the uh, application process to be interviewed for, but I, what I, if that's a disproportionate amount? You know, that's, that, that, I don't that, think it I is. I think that's going positive discrimination again. I, I, I really I really don't think it is because, like I said, if you look at the film industry and from my experiences, I can only talk whether my experiences are unrepresentative or not. I tend to be the only person of color there. I, I you don't see many fate unless, of course, we with did that Bollywood film where, of course, everyone. <laughs> where was, I, yeah. Well, where I, I was yeah, where I was the Well, no, actually, that's a lie because the whole. <laughs> Fighting crew. We're was from British. it all yeah. British yeah we're all white British yeah. <laughs> they're all white British Um but we should just explain about that and, uh, go on go, on, go Neil, for it Neil came with um, we were filming Yamla Tabaga Diwana 2
2: yeah that's right which was the the sequel to a very very incredibly successful Bollywood film yeah they haven't made the third Indian. well they've probably made enough money by now absolutely but I was called in as a cam operator for a few days work on that when they're filming in England and Neil came along with me um, as my assistant, jolly good job he did too. Yeah. But yeah, we we it was very interesting because they had brought, you know, must have been eighty percent of their film crew from from India. And this is a this is a major film. You mm. know, it's
1: their the equivalent of a blockbuster. Oh
2: it? yeah, absolutely. And in terms of numbers, you know, they they, they actually reach more people than than Hollywood. Mm. Uh, so they flown all these people over from India but because the lighting kit was is so expensive to transport they'd got a British lighting crew in to supply most of the most of the gear so the lighting crew were all were all we all white British guys and there's me and Neil who um you know Neil <laughs> in that situation I Neil's into the right the background, colour, yeah and 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 I was um you know I stood out a bit more so that which was which was quite interesting and I H-
1: have you ever felt like that on that uh, no on the I was gu-
2: just gonna say that's a very that was a very unusual situation for me and, yeah. it, and it but it was also quite education on that, uh, you know, I can then see...
1: How I feel. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: Um, and, it, you know, it, it wasn't a bad feeling. It was just slightly it was, it was unusual and i can't say it was a negative experience it was just it was just different and i wanted to yeah i wanted it to be less like that i suppose okay. and, I, and, I, and
1: and do you know what i, I don't know, it i'm no, it's not that like i'm ever saying that when i'm in a in a, in a group of people that are largely white i feel uncomfortable i just i'm very aware that it, it would be nice well, I'm not even bothered know, about it. I just feel like that there is, there is, there is a slight difference there. I never feel excluded for the most part. Yeah. I, I never, I never feel like you know my race is a massive thing, but I, it is noticeable, and it's just a feeling that's inherent in me that yeah. I am the only brown person, or whoever you know. It might be a Chinese black mexican whatever it is whatever ethnicity or disabled or in those various situations yeah Yeah. you know you feel very much like um you know i why am i the only person like this here not that i i want to um you know want to socialize with lots and lots of people like me it's good to socialize with people that aren't like you you're made very aware and and let's bring this back to film rather than a personal (laughs) perspective but you're you, you know no, but but there, there isn't is all there, about a personal perspective you it, know the whole idea of this and the
2: uh, inclusion rider and behind that is is—is other people you know in your, your position in the film world feel that there should be a, a greater representation and I, you know, I completely agree with that. However, you know, being from Salisbury, yeah, um, I used to take pictures for some for some national uh, organisations, yeah. and I was always told off for supplying pictures from Salisbury that didn't have much diversity. And I said, "Well, oh, really?" Th- but that is entirely representative. Of where we live, you know, there isn't much diversity here. And that's not my fault. Mm. But at the same time, there's nothing else you can do about it. There's no option. Uh, You know, you don't have any other option. You know, if those if you've got 20 people applying for a job and you have to get 20 percent that are BAME Mm -hmm. and only one guy applies, it's impossible to fulfill that. Of course, of course. Um, And I think there is an element of that. Um, especially in britain but you know uh, in america the inclusion rider thing ha- has got to take a slightly different uh, importance because america is so much more diverse than we are here in britain so you know we are limited again by the uh, proportions that we we have in britain um, mm-hmm. and again you know in even 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 greater uh, disparity between that in the film world in britain but in america you know that diversity is so much greater uh, and and indeed, more equal uh, in general society. Uh, but in terms I, of numbers, I, I, I think in terms of society, yes, in terms of
1: in terms of um output and media output, film output, television output, very unrepresentative. Yeah. and that's why that's such a big deal. Why are we getting a superhero film? at such a level of, of, say, Marvel proportions at the moment with a black character in the lead role, with surrounding black characters. You know, why is that such a big deal in 2018? Surely this is a, a, a milestone we should have passed a long time ago. It's not yeah, the first particularly
2: ever. From, from a Hollywood perspective. Absolutely. Again, yeah. he's, he's,
1: I just have to point out, I am very much aware Black Panther is not the first black superhero. You've got things like Spawn and Blade. but Yeah, <laughs> we've got that new one on Netflix as well, Black Lightning. Uh, black Lightning as well. Mm. You've got Luke, Luke Cage as well who's another guy um, does um, whatever superhero stuff. But I thought Black Panther, have you seen it yet, John? Uh, no, actually, I'm. I,
2: I was warned off it a little bit by uh, uh, by one friend, and then another said, uh, uh, "No, it's amazing." Go and see it. so, um, okay. I generally I like the superhero movies. Okay. I, I'm a, I'm a complete uh, uh, popular
1: scum like that, but um, <laughs> I, I do really want to see it. There's nothing wrong with liking superhero films; they're just all the same. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so th- that's a that, I've that's a really uh, important and definitely a thing that will come up again uh, regarding. Inclusion and the inclusion rider. I have only been in- included with things because I know you, John, and that I think that's that's part of my. Just to sum up here, that's part of the issue is is rather than just knowing someone within the industry. I think there needs to be more avenues for people to come in organically into the industry, rather than in having, general, yeah. yeah. Rather than having to know someone to have an in, I think you 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 need to. There needs to be some sort of doors there where you can get involved with film. On your merits rather than who you know, and I, I think that's a that's a large large part of it. And I'm so pleased now that you're seeing films like Get Out, Black Panther, which is doing great work for uh, the black community in America, where they finally feel represented uh, on on a large scale uh, on screen with people that they can relate to. And I, we saw videos on on YouTube uh, and uh, Twitter and places like that of little black children that are pointing at these standees in 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 the halls going well that that character looks like me and i i can relate to him i'm not pointing at captain america wanting to there's nothing wrong with a little black boy pointing at captain america but this little boy's pointing at the Black Panther going yeah. he looks like me, I could be him rather it's, than it 's an you know. aspiration
2: that that has not previously existed really, and that's no that, that's, not really you know I might my, my, my be wonderful for for, well, for It's brilliant,
1: and you know uh, nothing wrong with me aspiring to wanting to be i don't know he man or um o from the Thundercats. you know those those were things as, as a child, I was like, oh, I could be like him, and you know would have been nice to have a, a role model on screen and, and this is goes back to the whole thing of the things we see on TV have such a profound effect, or even in cinema have such a profound effect on us growing up. You know, people look to Hollywood, look to television, look to media, look to fame for role models and p- things to aspire to I guess so it's it's it has a massive impact on you growing up so yeah we'll be talking about the inclusion rider as soon again I'm sure okay moving on our next thing final thing in the news we want to talk about this week is going back to something we covered in a previous podcast which is netflix releasing strategies now netflix seem to be shoving out films that studios don't want at the moment the, the thing we spoke about last time was the third cloverfield film which ended up surprisingly on Netflix rather than going to cinemas um, during the Super Bowl uh, or after the Super Bowl. There was an advert trail during the Super Bowl halftime of which people could then download and watch immediately as a massive surprise straight after the game. And there seems to be a wealth of films that were touted to go to cinemas that have landed on netflix and one of those films is annihilation which comes from the pen and direction of alex garland famous for doing films like ex machina he also wrote the 28 days later films it's now surfaced that he may have actually directed the dread reboot as well rather than uh, peter travis who was credited as directing it Um, there was some stuff that came out that suggests that actually he was just a friend For the fact that Alex Garland directed that film, and you can see some lines being drawn between some of that to think it might be plausible. So Annihilation uh, landed on there this week. Uh, I I got around to watching it. Uh, I think that the main issue with Annihilation is it's being released in cinemas in the USA and certain other territories, as well as being on Netflix for them. But it's not getting that release and same treatment over in the UK and other places as well. It is a film that 100% deserves to be seen on the big screen at scale. Um, And the scope and and the way the story is told, it is an action film uh, following five women who go into this thing called the shimmer where there are cells replicating. So it's sort of a science, a smart science fiction film. Uh, Natalie Portman plays this. I think she's a microbiologist. She goes in there to try and find out what happened to her husband, played by Oscar Isaacs, who comes out uh, from his military trip a, a year later, coughing up blood and uh, it's it's sort of a science fiction mystery film uh there's lots going on there and i i think it's just it's good to see five women in lead roles that mainly take the film over have you got around seen this one yet john uh
2: no it's it's li- literally been queued up for me to watch this week yeah very interesting because i'm sure i saw trailers for it in the cinema
1: and then it, it never never appeared and I, I wondered what had happened to it and suddenly it's, it's on netflix that that's correct yeah there was tons of trailers for it it looks slightly avatary in its uh in its trailer form and i managed to put on a cinema screening of this i think it's probably the only cinema screening of this in the uk in 5.1 and all the rest of it uh, very very lucky to have been able to do that in my capacity i am glad that i did so i think unless you've got a huge projector or sound system at home or a massive television um you're not going to get the benefit of watching this on a tablet and you're not going to feel the full force of it. it is a film that 100 percent deserves to be seen on a big screen with loud sound so if you do have that capacity at home to to at least crank up your surround sound do so. It's a film that it took took me by surprise and it, it's, Alex Garland is known for making these intriguing science fiction films that... When well, did he wrote the screenplay for uh, my debut feature, uh, 28 Days Later I think, didn't he? Your debut feature? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one I was as an actor. <laughs> uh, he also wrote Sunshine as well, the uh, Danny Boyle film. He he has a canny knack for bringing blockbuster concepts uh, to a slightly smarter level. Annihilation is no different to that. It's a very challenging film. It's I think it's based on a comic book source or a novel source. Um, there are other sequels, but it felt like it, the, where the story ended n- just needed to stop there. It's a fully encapsulated film, it doesn't need sequels to it. Has a very under the skin, sort of vibe towards the end of it, and I know that's a film that we both saw together, John. In fact, yeah, and we, had to, uh, we both took very different things from it. And yeah, uh, was the, do you think this would be the case with Annihilation? Um, possibly in its latter end, it feels very, it owes uh, a debt to Jonathan Glazer's direction of Under the Skin. I had uh, almost, I speak of religious experiences, I have almost a religious experience watching Under the Skin, it's up there with. Uh, the the best films of this decade for me, if not the best film of the decade for me. I find it endlessly watchable. I find that I can go back and and take things from it and from the script from the plot from the acting by scarlett johansson as that had those cameras affixed inside vans that were sort of doorstepping people in in glasgow and a film that took me out of a normal film narrative and put me in a very yeah, completely
2: and you've no i had no clue at any point which direction it was going where mm. it was going to go what even what i wanted to happen to the character i i i you kept you guessing the entire time.
1: Absolutely, and you and you weren't you weren't as hot on it as as, as I was, John. I think you came away a bit slightly well, negative. I or... don't know.
2: By the end of it, I I, well, I say by the end of it, the 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 conclusion, yeah, uh, left me feeling rather rather disenfranchised from humanity, and uh, <laughs> I, you know, I just thought, well, if that's if that's how human beings can, can end up treating something that they don't understand, yes, you know, the, the
1: hope is lost. I've, I've, I've thought this for many a year, sadly. Uh, I think this is a, a statement on much of humanity, but there's also some yeah. warmth from humanity in in, oh, in yeah. that film as well. You know, there's a character that takes in Scarlett Johansson's character, looks after her, feeds well, her, wouldn't you? looks after her. <laughs> I, I, I think that some of the special effects in that film and just the, the, the way it's shot and composed. Um, slightly deviates from the source novel. I think the source novel has different characters and different things that happen in it. But it worked for me. And it's a film that I constantly go back and think about because uh, even after watching that initial watch, I think we spent about maybe an hour to half an hour on on the balcony with a beer, just talking through what we've just seen and just discussing life in general
2: um and do you think you're going to be having those sort of conversations with uh, with me after i've seen annihilation possibly
1: not to the same extent i definitely think it's a, a film that uh, you will want to go away and think digest. about it yeah digest and think about in detail um and i know you're a fan of natalie portman as well especially in films like leon for example and also uh, black swan and some other things you know you, you like her as an actress um she She's just a brilliant lead in this film and she carries it through with this very sort of straight face. Jennifer Jason Leigh, great to see her in there and and some newcomers like Tessa Thompson. I love Jennifer Jason Leigh. She's she's, a great, great presence, amazing presence. You know, going back to Netflix being a dumping ground for some of these features where the studios don't think that it's going to connect with an audience. I can understand why the studio bottled it on this occasion. You know, I think that from... Is there an oddness to this that, that, that perhaps the money men might not have got on board with yeah, for a British audience? You're hundred percent right, John. There, there there's there's an issue where I, I think it looks like a blockbuster from the the trailer and it will play quite broadly, but it doesn't. It it, it requires a modicum of intelligence to dissect some of the uh, Which is
2: kind of insulting, isn't it, that they think to a British audience we're we're not gonna get it.
1: I think to an American audience as well, but because <laughs> because there is uh, a wealth of cinemas in the US. It kind of warranted. Oh, it's
2: not so much of a
1: a, a chance for them. No, to, it's, to it's economies there. of scale and mm. uh, the fact that they can shove it out to a few cinemas over in in the states, rather than it's not a commercial venture in the UK at all. Uh, if this was an independent art house release uh, by a smaller studio, I think they would have definitely pushed it out there into the art house circuit. But um, because it's such a, a bear moth of a of a film, uh, they put it out onto Netflix in the UK. And I I think it really deserved much, much better than what it got, especially because Alex Garland is such an accomplished writer and now director as well. But this is becoming a trend now, isn't it, with Netflix? We're seeing some incredibly big
2: names behind and in front of the camera Transitioning to what you would think of as the small screen, although Mm. now people are having, you know, 60, 70 inch televisions
1: in their houses, not so much of a small screen. No, but Um, you've got Martin Scorsese's next film is going to end up on Netflix, Netflix, even though he slated Netflix not too long ago, and now he's like, oh, I'm quite open to that. Uh, Unfortunately, Woody Allen signed. a couple of film deal with Amazon Prime and some of his content's going to end up on, on there as well. There's a lot of films that have come out that are funded now by some of these streaming sites. A lot of them um, for example Amazon Prime funded Last Flag Flying with uh, Launch Fishburne and Bryan Cranston and Steve Carell and that's after a very small cinema release it ended up on Amazon Prime um, The Big Six ended up on Amazon Prime. Some of these big name films are just you know because they're funded by Amazon they can just get the rights not too long later to then shove them onto their services and it it is i don't know it's taken away from the cinema we've i've spoken about this on the podcast before about Taken away from the cinema experience, you know, why would you need to go to the cinema anymore when you can just watch it at home as part of your subscription? And a lot of people definitely
2: feel like that. You know, yeah. it's 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 very difficult then to convert them back to the cinema once they've once they've got used to seeing. And I am entirely uh, uh, guilty of this myself. You know, if if I miss a film at the cinema, I'll I'll wait for it to come out on, you know, and see it on the on the t- or or indeed I'll or semi-deliberately miss something at the cinema, knowing that, I mean, for heaven's sake, um, Thor Ragnarok yeah. is still playing in some cinemas. Yeah. I can download it and watch it on my Apple TV at home now, Mm. you know, and that's been available for a couple of weeks. Yeah. You know, still all these films that are still playing, you can, you can actually get now. So in terms of even of time, you're not getting any benefit from going to the Uh, cinema. So that's turning a lot of people's attention away from, from the big screen.
1: There's a, there's a wider issue here. And I I think if we were to to go down this avenue, we'd be here all day. The cinema needs to offer a proposition that you're not going to get anywhere else. And that's what, cinema needs to focus on the uniqueness the, and whether that's your the projection and the sound that you're not unable so if you live in a flat where you can only have a small television and a small sound system you're never going to feel the full brunt of Blade Runner 2049 But you go to the cinema, you're going to get that full experience that you're not going to get anywhere else. However, some people go to the cinema as an event thing. So rather than just at home, you go for the popcorn, the ambience, the atmosphere, the service. And, you know, that's all part of having a special night out. You know, people would go to the cinema on a Friday, Saturday, and they still do to have a time out you know it's, it's an occasion isn't it yeah you're away from your Richard
2: phone and <laughs> other distractions well this it.
1: is the other thing the temptation of we live in a multimedia multi-screen world now you, you can be watching a film on Netflix and then look over on your social media on your phone or get a text message or whatever and it takes you out of that and you I think that this needs to be a bit of self-discipline in there to fully experience that properly yeah. but the, the cinema needs to offer something unique you're not going to get anywhere else I go to the cinema because i like to see films projected a properly and b on a massive sound system and those are the things that pull me in i'm not too worried about the service i'm also worried about the patrons but that's a a completely different (laughs) thing as well which you can add or subtract from of course uh, of course movie
2: watching experience
1: there's also a price point issue with cinema as well that they need to work on that as well to make it more of an enticing proposition well
2: again that's an that's an an interesting point um going back to the the as a movie thing, you know. Uh, to take my previous example, um, the the Ragnar uh, Thor mm. latest Thor film, I can go to the cinema in Salisbury. My local cinema will charge, I don't know, twelve fifteen quid yeah, to, watch, 12, to watch it's, it. Yeah. It's 12, 12. 75 Yeah, yeah um, to to watch that for, you know, the length of the film. Yeah, I can go home. Rent that yep. for four ninety nine and uh-huh. have it all weekend. Yeah, but you're not going to get the big sound and it's still system. Still
1: there. You're not going to get the big sound system. You're not going to get the big screen. Yeah,
2: but some people, a lot of people, just say, "Oh, I don't care
1: about that." Well, that's and that's a by shame. The by. That's uh, well,
2: I, but I think that's a shame because they're they're missing the bigger picture, which is that you're watching a film in a contained environment without all those distractions for the rest of your life you know you're you're going there to really engage with the story and i don't think you can do that at home i really don't i don't think there's a way of reproducing the same involvement you
1: get in a movie watching it on a on a small screen at home than you can possibly in a in a theater i think you're right on that that perspective conversely there are there are things that buck the trend uh the greatest showman has come out on dvd or comes out on dvd on on monday it's still huge numbers at the cinema people are still going to see that film i mean it's been in the cinemas for 11 weeks which is unheard of and, oh, uh, and is that well, well we'll find out what number it comes in at yeah. uh, when we do the box office in a bit but um it's still doing massive numbers. People are still wanting to go and see that film and they can go and see it at home from Monday. It's just a, 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 it's, a it's a remarkable story in, in that sense. People are still going there. But there are other people that have constraints and I think this is a point I'll bring up in uh, another podcast who have dependents at home. So whether that's children, people they care for that are unable to get to cinema because of accessibility or because of timings or because of just life just in general. Cost, as well. you, you know, cost yeah, is a big thing. Absolutely. And they can just sit at home, subscribe to then nine ninety nine Netflix a month and be able to watch a film you know in the comfort of their own home uh, without having to go through the rigmarole of getting out there which can obviously be time consuming and, and a hassle basically and we, we all want an easy life don't we so.
2: This would be uh, a, a really interesting thing to have feedback from the listeners from yeah. so let's say you've been to see a film at the cinema and then loved it and later downloaded it or bought the DVD or whatever. What was the difference between that experience and, and, you know, do you feel disappointed once you've got the small screen version after being so blown away by it at the cinema? And conversely, have you... perhaps first seen a film on the small screen and then gone to see it at the cinema or, you know, seen a re-release or something. So kids these days are discovering Jurassic Park, for example, um, on DVD. Yeah. And then, you know, a year or two ago, we had the the re-release um, on the big screen, which yeah. I have to say, I went to see that in IMAX and it and it was almost as much if not more impact on me than than i saw it the first time in in 1993 yeah. um absolutely incredible so we'd, we'd love to hear yeah um your definitely. contrasting opinions perhaps of films um that you've seen on the small screen or the big screen and which way round, and what difference that made to you because that's really interesting to us and uh, i think the wider listening uh, film community as to the impact that film has on people depending on where you see it
1: yeah get in touch uh, Hello at FilmSeekers.com. Send us a, a line about what films that you have seen back on the big screen or for the very first time that uh, have passed you by. Or you can tweet us at FilmSeekers or get in, join us on the page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash FilmSeekers. Why not just give us your thoughts and opinions of this? I think uh, one of the films that I saw recently uh, on the big screen again was Terminator 2, which was re-put into 3D. Oh, yeah uh which was the gimmick to get people back in uh it brought people to the cinema who haven't seen terminator on a big screen you know it's a real treat for someone to be able i mean i do have a little bit of advantage i can see any film i want on a massive screen at this moment in time however for everyone else it's not a thing that they can watch their favorite film or a film that they've never seen before on a large scale format and it makes such a difference i would
2: love to go with um I, I, i i i'm a scout leader and i i Regularly interact with um, young people who, who do not have the same frame of reference as I do, um, and I would love to see uh, some of those go to the cinema and see some films that we saw growing up with mm. on the big screen, um, and some who have some who haven't seen them before on the small screen, just to see what their their different uh, how their opinions might differ and how the impact of those films might might change. Um, between seeing them on on different size screens, yeah, and, and and indeed, if they if the films we we saw and enjoyed on the big screen when we were growing up uh, have the same impact, yeah, at, with them having seen it on a big screen rather than just, you know, Saturday morning on ITV.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the passage of time will obviously play a large part in that. I, I, particularly oh, done... But will it? That's what I'm interested yeah. to explore, well, this... because
2: Jurassic Park didn't. I really thought if Jurassic Park was released brand new tomorrow, You're right. it would hold up as well as it did in 1993. Honestly, I really thought that the IMAX print was absolutely stunning.
1: I, I, I think that... Uh, did we go and see The Matrix together? Yeah, I think we did, yeah. Yeah, that, that had a massive impact on me when I saw that on the big screen. Oh, yeah. uh, less so when I watched it the second time around, it's still an amazing film. But films like that, the iconic films that I think, if I hadn't seen it on the big screen, I don't think it would have been as impactful for me as possible. So it would have been interesting to see younger, uh, Blair Witch Project was another film that I saw on a big screen. Oh, I don't
2: think that could do anything like it. As frightening as it was, as it as it should have been, I didn't really find it that. But okay. I know a lot of friends were, you know, it did have that impact on. But I really don't think it would have had anything watching it for the first time on right. a small screen. And
1: you think about the Blair Witch Project could have been squeaked out onto Netflix in yeah. in the modern climate. I think just be it?
2: bored with it. I think I think modern kids would, would switch it off. Right. Okay. That's, um, that's... Watching it on TV.
1: Well, that is the news for today. Like uh, John said, if you've got any opinions on anything that we've spoken about today, get in contact with us. Drop us an email or send us a tweet, or even leave a comment on our Facebook page. On to uh, festivals and, I guess, awards. We've covered awards extensively going through the Oscar nominations there. There are some... Cans forerunners, people that might be put forward for this year 's cans we'll come on to that in the next podcast. There were two brilliant festivals that uh have gone by very recently uh they include the the Berlin Film festival and that was only a few weeks ago, so always
2: know. some interesting uh nominations coming out of that that you' really interested to see how far they get um actually with with a lot of the um a lot of the film festivals it's it's always fascinating to try and have your pick as to what's going to make a cinema release um where you are because well, there's so <laughs> there's so
1: many that that never actually get to you know have a big release but in terms of the film festival circuit often Berlin is seen as the, the genesis, the beginning of the year. And we won't see these films come to cinema or even home release until next, this time next year or the middle of next year. And this year's winner was a, uh, a film from a Romanian director uh, called Touch Me Not. Uh, it wasn't very popular amongst the, the critics, but it took away the, the award and that got the uh, Golden Bear, which is the top prize at Berlin. And uh, Wes Anderson also took away the Silver Bear for his direction of the animated upcoming film. Isle of Dogs, which uh, you're looking forward to, John? I'm very
2: much looking forward to. It look, looks absolutely fascinating. This is the uh, what looks like stunningly animated stop-frame animation about uh, a boy going to look for his, his lost dog. Uh, just everything about it looks fascinating, down to the 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 humor that's in the trailer the uh, beautiful animation and they they seem to be doing something really different new big and and in it in it on a scale that that perhaps we've not seen before in in terms of physical stop frame animation yeah
1: and a, a fantastic voice cast as well you know we've got brian cranston in there uh loads and loads of other people and he's the one who knocks you know oh is he <laughs> very good. Yeah, I just just thought this year's Berlin was brilliant. It had a, a, a lifetime achievement award for Willem Dafoe as well, deservedly so. We we've spoken about him earlier on being such a a great presence. Um but a Glasgow Film Festival had an interesting time this year. It, we were caught in a snow blizzard which is uh, unheard of in the uk across the whole country it was the the beast from the east is what they called it armageddon and yes a siberian storm hit the uk during glasgow film festival unfortunately m- making them having to call off quite a few of their q and a's oh, and some well, of some, yeah some of their programs but they dealt with it incredibly well it must have been very difficult for the organizers um they did have some great films isle of dogs opened up uh, their first night and then a film called Nay Passaran, uh, which was about the Scottish engineers behind some of the engines uh, for the uh, dictator in, in South America. They stopped working on the basis of they didn't want to help the war effort in South America. And Nay Passeran uh, means... Uh, you shall not pass that, that's that's basically a Scottish Scottish eyes version of, of the title there um, and that, that plays I just a, imagine Ian McKellen shouting that Jimmy uh, <laughs> now now <laughs> and uh, yeah that that concluded the festival up in Glasgow we'll be talking about festivals and because award season is now pretty much finished uh, we'll be teeing up some of those new releases that will be viable for awards in, in the coming years in next few podcasts so and that, that'll be coming up Uh, we've chatted for quite a long time so now it's time to take a break we'll be back after these words hey everyone i'm jason michael and i'm lee brady and we're the atlantic screen connection podcast we're a podcast that looks to analyze what makes films great, with a warm atmosphere and a good laugh. New releases, retrospectives, and absolute classics—all reassessed and reviewed.
0: You can find the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and if you're looking for a more
1: direct approach, you can find us on Twitter. Just look for Jason Michael at Atlantic SC and Lee Brady at Big Pick Reviews. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast. Let the games begin.
0: The UK Box Office Top 10 Countdown.
1: And this is the part of the show where we go through the UK Box Office as of the week ending, March the 15th. So that's up until the Thursday, a whole week's worth there. Uh, We're just going to talk about a couple of films outside of the top 10, uh, which both of us managed to see. One of which, John, is
2: Gringo. Very nice, Dave, starring uh, David Yellow uh, well, <laughs> David Yellow,
1: are you Yeah, Is David, that right? Yeah.
2: As right. A, a slightly hapless employee sent down to Mexico to uh, what he thinks is just do his normal job and is suddenly embroiled as his entire world is tipped upside down in shenanigans from his bosses, one of whom is the... Uh, fabulous. Charlize Theron. Charlize Theron. And uh, yeah, and it, and it all takes massively different turns uh, from there on in backwards and forwards. So we're a very interesting film.
1: Well, let's, uh, let's uh, listen to a little clip from it. What do we
0: do now? Did we
1: call the cops?
0: Would it be such a bad thing if he didn't come back? What are you talking about? We are not leaving Harold in Mexico. That's crazy. You're the one who said put him out of his misery. I don't mean it literally. But you said literally put him out of his misery. Oh, my. I meant not literally, literally. Literally is something people say now. It doesn't mean a thing. Okay. They're going to be inspecting the plan tomorrow, and if they find anything off, this whole deal is shot. I know a guy. Oh, here we go again. You know a guy. No, I know a guy who might be really good for this kind of thing, extraction and special ops type things.
2: (sighs) Boy, this is really bad timing. So there we go. That was uh, Charlize Theron and uh, Joel Edgerton discussing the fate of uh, the poor, hapless David Aiello in uh, Gringo. Um,
1: What did you think of this film, John? uh,
2: I really enjoyed it. Again, it was one of those films that... that, um, followed a plot that was as meandering as some of the dialogue which I thought was actually really uh, really quite fun you get an idea there um, with Charlize Theron she's <laughs> Clearly, a, uh, a a forceful character. Um, well, and, they're both uh, horrible bosses, aren't they? They are. Innit? Yeah. And Joel Edgerton, uh, slightly less so, slightly less sure of himself. And the plot takes place majoritively in Mexico, but uh, involving an American company and their perhaps misgiving misdeeds. Uh, involving themselves in a a Mexican drugs cartel, which they're trying to extract themselves from. Mm. What did you think?
1: I wanted to like the film more than I did, and um, I I don't think David Yolowo is a a strong enough character to pull off a role such as this. I think he's a fantastic actor, and I've obviously seen him in films like Selma, for example, where he plays Martin Luther King Jr., and uh, also films like uh, Queen of Catway as well, and he's just he is a brilliant actor. However... The way this film was marketed, and especially looking at the uh, poster there for it, it appears to be a bit of a more of a slap about knock about comedy than what it actually is. It's a real mismatch of tones and. And narrative directions, uh, which sometimes plays to some broad comedy. Um, oh
2: yeah, some of it was was laugh out loud, but yeah. then the the situation around it was was, was deathly serious. So there was some, and uh, not in the way that the juxtaposition usually works with between comedy and seriousness. No, it, and you it, look it, at films by like old.
1: Tarantino, where that that juxtaposition completely works, where you've got these laugh out loud moments, but also like very much a seriousness. But this it feels a little bit more pulpy when you watch a, a Tarantino film. This tried to actually take a much more Yeah, like you said, a serious edge to it. And I I felt that um, some of the the situations that came up were fantastical and were very dark in places. I don't think it does any... Uh, favors for Mexican American relationships at all. I think the Mexicans are played in, uh, in a very poor light. And if this was And also, li- they're
2: quite a two dimensional light as well. Very
1: much so. None of the, those characters were ever fleshed out. I think it was good that you had a character in David Yellowbo's character who is not uh, American. He's actually of Nigerian descent and carries that accent with him. And I thought that was an interesting characteristic of him to to put into the film he could have easily been a, a, an African American uh, and still been able to be part of that it was never inherent that his Nigerian descent was part of the story i mean there's a slight mention of it no it's not, it. Not, not i'm just barely referred to is not really there's a slight mention of it in there um it is uh, directed by Nash Nash Edgerton who is the brother of uh, Joel Edgerton and uh, Charlie Sheen uh, executive produced it so you would expect her to take uh, the lead role Charlize is excellent i think joel edgerton is excellent in it as well but there was one performance that really caught me by surprise i didn't know she was in it and i wasn't aware that she was an actress either and that is the performance of paris jackson uh, the daughter of michael jackson who's in a very small cameo role in, in a guitar shop who turns up playing this quite i think like stoner teenager rocker girl just that performance in in, in its moment in itself showed very very, very good very good and and so much promise as well it was clearly someone who was able to act and act very well not just someone there because their dad was one of the most famous pop stars of all time she's brilliant i'd really like to i'm really looking forward to seeing what she does next with, with her acting career and i i would welcome that she she was brilliant in the small very small role that she was on screen but gringo not connecting with audiences in its first week uh, in the UK it's only managed a, a paltry number 13 there yeah because
2: I, I get the feeling if they'd put Amanda Seyfried on the uh, on the poster that might have actually helped it somewhat. yeah
1: it, it probably would have done that but once again she didn't do an awful lot in that film either really she was no. kind of like the baggage for a, an, another male character
2: yeah they filled they filled the roles as they say didn't yeah. they but um, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, didn't do, anything, things, didn't do anything that? special with it, but I, uh, overall, I enjoyed it. I think I thought it was a, I thought it was a, a good romp, but not necessarily yes, it's not necessarily a, awards worthy, but um, yeah, oh. an interesting story. But again, not necessarily a story that you you haven't really heard before. It was it was more the perspective. It was the, the, from David yellow's character's uh, Harold's perspective. That was that was what was slightly different about it. I yeah. think. Um, and to to be honest, if you're a Charlie Saron fan, this is a you know really interesting different sort of character for her to play and she sure. she really does it very well
1: she, she is she is brilliant in this in this film uh, another film that uh, i caught up with uh, on my own that in its first week is actually outside of the top 10 as well sadly was you were never really here the latest film from the uh, direction of uh, lynn ramsey it's based on uh, a short novel by jonathan amos and it's about a hitman who has to go and save a young girl from a uh, a sort of sex ring, I guess, a very young girl. But it's less about the story and more about the character. It's a real tight film at 90 minutes long. Joaquin Phoenix is phenomenal in the fact that there's not many lines of dialogue within the whole film. Um, it's purely through his physical acting and you get time to sit and you f- you don't feel like it's rushed through in that 90 minutes at all, you get enough time to sit and be with his character and try and understand what's going on through his head. It's a very... Uh, this character lives with his mother. It's a very kind of uh, secretive world in which he lives in. Goes, you know, Because he's a hitman, he has to keep his identity secret to an extent but also not make any relations with anyone else. And which you think must be a little bit difficult considering he's got that enormous beard which you, you, <laughs> you think he must have grown for um, the upcoming
2: Mary, Mary Magdalene Ma- where he's playing, playing Jesus. Jesus.
1: Mm, yeah, uh, he, he has got this massive beard. He's mostly in a hoodie, a black hoodie over the top of his head for the film. He, and he... he He isn't really the hero of the piece at all. In fact... It's his mother, isn't it? Uh, well, no, no, not at all. Actually, there's a character in here that there's, a, there's uh, another film in there, the, the Hitman's Mother. The Hitman's surely, Yeah, um, the, the, her, mo- the mother's, uh, the, the, the the lady whose name's escaping who plays the mother. Does an exceptional job as well. He's a he's a very he's a very plagued character, and it's just a, a lovely sit with this character just to see what goes through the mind of a Hitman, and it's quite believable in place. It's also very, very, very violent. Um, it uses the whole hitch thing of not what you saw but what you heard and it uses very smart angles to get across some of the most violent part you know, people's heads are being exploded left right and center but you're not actually seeing that on screen and it's that trick of the mind uh i had to look away from the screen a couple of times and it's not like me to do that
2: so that that puts me in mind of uh, collateral with uh, tom cruise tom cruise yeah and um, jamie fox jamie fox which um kind of f- from that summation kind of um, rings similar bells is there any any similarity there uh
1: only from the hitman part i would say okay. he's a man who who is his own island and you do sit with his character for the entirety of the film right. like i said he he's not making dialogue with anyone else at all he is just tortured throughout this whole film and he's supposed to be the hero and he is not the victim in this thing but ultimately you do come out feeling like he is a victim of sorts if you do get to uh, see it playing at your local cinema i would implore you to go and catch that one uh, sadly at number 12 now on to the the proper rundown
2: number 10 it's tomb raider starring alicia vikander in a, a bit of a reboot for the series following the reboot of the game we see a younger and much less sure of herself lara croft having lost her father many years before she is struggling um, having not taken up her inheritance because she's not accepting that he is dead and eventually she gets a a hint that he might still be alive and goes off to find him and that's where the big Lara Croft adventure begins on an island off uh,
1: Japan I think Um, yeah yeah, I think it's somewhere in South Southeast Asia. Yeah, uh, how did you feel about this in comparison to the previous iteration of Tomb Raider, where it was played by Angelina Jolie, and obviously based on a a different version of this character in the computer game, you know, Origins.
2: Yeah, indeed. Well, not not having caught up with Tomb Raider since the um, since the initial outings on the, the PlayStation, uh, I, I I was unfamiliar with this version of the character. But Alicia Vikander immediately set you straight into it. You know, I think you have to. View these things as um, as their own their own beasts, you know. It's
1: slightly modernized as well. I was quite yeah. I quite liked seeing the fact that she was a very rich girl, but she didn't rest on the laurels of the wealth of her father in actual fact she was very much a working class girl and she's a Deliveroo driver an Uber Eats driver you yeah know, that's she's picking right. up takeaways and cycling them to houses uh,
2: which of course lead to some some absolutely brilliantly staged action I mean who, who'd have thought you could have such an exciting and cinematic um, action sequence on on, on, on bikes yeah. you know on push bikes through the centre of London but that, I thought that was really really well done and yeah as soon as it came I thought, hang on a minute, I thought Lara Croft was a, was a millionaire. Why is she struggling to make money um, doing these sort of things? And then the reason for that is all explained. And it was, yeah, a really excellent MacGuffin for the, for the character all, all the way through, actually, her lack of money and the fact that she was fighting against that because she just didn't want to accept... Um, that her father was dead, and of course, spoiler alert, he's not. <laughs> the uh, <laughs> I thought was re- was really interesting. And then when we get into the the more atypical tomb raider tomb raiding kind of stuff and that sort of action, that almost took a back seat to the to the character story, which I thought was w- was how it should be. You know, Angelina Jolie's character um, w- was straight into the action. Yep. Um, uh, well, a- as this starts, but in a totally different way. There was lots of lovely nods to the. Uh, earlier and the later computer games um so if you're a if you're a tomb raider game fan um there will be enough in there for you but as uh, not being one of those i mean i i I thoroughly enjoyed it and um i actually went with my young lady who doesn't go to the cinema very often um and she thoroughly enjoyed it as well Uh, not only because it's a you know an an exciting film with a female protagonist it does have lots of layers to it um I mean it is an adventure film that's not that's not action adventure let's not um, be around the bush there but I did really did think it had a a lot of extra depth that was i want to say unnecessary for the genre that that, that made it a, a lot more interesting okay the other um, hook, of course, from those of us from around here is that uh, all the, oh, yeah. the sequences at Croft Manor were filmed at Wilton House. In they fact, were, yes. I, I think I drove past while they were shooting it.
1: Oh, okay. Um, so that's that another
2: little bit of interest. Well, you, you know I should have dropped my card in. So yeah. do you need a steady cam operator. Um, as it happened for those sequences, they, they I think they did it all on track and crane, but you know, they could have done it on steady cam if yeah, I had yeah, made it, it exciting. In. Yeah.
1: I vehemently disagree with your um, take on Tomb Raider, but that's. Uh, my personal view—it's probably well.
2: You've played you've played the games more often. Than I have. I, have, I more, don't really fit more, more, more.
1: I have. I've played all the Tomb Raider games. Uh, sadly, there's an insight into my life. Um, I've <laughs> also played the, the reboot as well. I think Alicia, Alicia Vikander does a fantastic job of embodying uh, the latest iteration of Lara Croft, and 100 percent, her she gives it her all in in this performance, and and that's completely understandable that she would do that. I think as a story, I've seen it all before. I think that some of the characters, uh, subsidiary characters are poorly fleshed out. I do feel that sometimes, and I've said this uh, on social media, it feels like a rich white girl's um, gap yard. Um and, and she is off an adventure. She does feel like she can go off and do these things. The whole story you could predict from beginning to end, there wasn't enough action sequence into it. And as on as wrote as the original Tomb Raider films were at least that gave me as as a gamer and a film lover as well, if I was just purely a gamer going to see this that this film based on that. Um, you want to see lots of action. I felt I had more of that in both Tomb Raider films, so Tomb Raider and uh, Cradle of Life, I think the uh, the other one was called. I just felt that there was something sadly lacking in a lot of the development of some of the characters. I think Dominic West puts in one of the worst performances I've ever seen on screen. Yeah, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't his delivery of know. lines is atrocious and he is clearly there to take the paycheck at the end of the day. I really, really dislike this film 100%, but clearly... It's resonating with other audiences.
2: Number nine. It's three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. What did you think, Neil? I mean, clearly it's, it's picking up the awards, but what did you think?
1: Yeah, I I've, I've thoroughly love this film. I don't think there's much more to say about this film uh, that we already have, haven't have said. Francis McDormand, excellent. Sam Rockwell, excellent. Uh, there is a bit of a dodgy CG idea in there, but that's probably the only thing I can take away from this. I don't uh, agree with the uh, connotations that it's unrepresentative of race. I think it's fully... Uh, That's believable. more of a plot point than a, than yeah, a criticism. It's, fully, yeah. it's, it's fully, fully believable that this this is what this uh, place ebbing uh, looks like uh, in terms of its uh, racial diversity. In its ninth week, it's done exceptionally well for itself, uh, probably mostly on the back of some of these awards as well. But word of mouth's got around and it's held in there at number nine.
2: Number eight.
1: I, Tonya. And this is uh, Margot Robbie playing the famous ice skater Tonya Harding who's fall from grace uh, was when she did something despicable to a fellow contestant at the Olympics Alice and Janie obviously picking up the best supporting actress at the Oscars I thoroughly enjoy. I think uh, Margaret Robbie is an exceptional actress. She's she's throws herself into all these roles. Um, I thought some of the skating sequences were much better, and that's exactly how you should do a skating scene compared to Molly's Game earlier on this year, where they CGI'd basically uh, Jessica Chastain's head onto someone else's body, and it was an appalling sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is much more uh, cinematic, choreographed. Yeah, I gather she did do quite a lot of it. As she well. did, yeah. She, she would have never have got to the standard that required, but some of the editing, obviously where they had a stunt double in there as well, was brilliant. Um, uh, the, the effects for a small film as well was excellent. Um, the film as a whole didn't work for me uh, as, as uh, a narrative. I think the discomfort between... Uh, this dark comedy that we talk about, where horrendous things happen, and yet you've got this levity. It you have the uh, the unreliable nar- narrators at the centre of it, and there's a bit of sort of a documentary style talking heads. Well, that didn't happen, and you constantly go back to the characters talking uh, in the present, looking back on these things. Kind of puts you on the off on the back foot a little bit. Um, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of uh, the competitor of which she had an altercation with, and I would like to see some more of her story than we got. I understand that this film is Tonya's film, and I understand why that was chosen. It's got a kicking soundtrack to it. Uh, There's not much more we can say. It's into its third week at number eight.
2: Number seven. It's The Shape of Water, the beautiful tale of uh, a a fish man uh, man. (laughs) (laughs) captured by the government and being investigated by the wicked General
1: Zod. Um, Played by Michael Shannon, of course. (laughs) And uh, this obviously took the Oscar for Best Picture and as well as uh, Best Director for Guillermo del Toro. Guillermo del Toro, once again on form, telling dark fairy fairy tales for adults in the classical style. Lots and lots of touches of Pan's Labyrinth in there as well, but also some of his other works. I felt there was a bit of mimic in there as well, the early 90s film. If you haven't got around to seeing that one, definitely one to, to watch. I... Felt that uh, Sally, Sally Hawkins' character and her performance as a mute woman uh, was exceptional. Um, it was also exceptionally unusual and interesting.
2: You know, not just because she was mute, but because of the understated way she played it as well. I, I, as I said earlier, it could be very easy, I imagine, for an actor to go over the top with a, with your facial expressions, with your gestures when you're playing a mute character. But she really didn't. She she really held it back uh, as you imagine somebody in that situation, wouldn't it? It's all the more believable for it.
1: Absolutely. And Doug Jones, of course, let's not forget him, as the uh, fishman in the water doing some brilliant work once again as a, a creature feature. Uh, and once again, you, uh, it harks back to a lot of other films such as The Creature from the Black Lagoon. There's, there's plenty of touches in there. And Guillermo del Toro is obviously very cine-literate. Number six. It's Ladybird. Yeah, Greta Gerwig's debut feature starring Saoirse Ronan as Lady Bird or Christine as her real name is uh, in the film. Uh, A mother-daughter relationship, tempestuous uh, teenager who's wanting to escape small town life and go and live essentially and rebelling and her poor relationships with her mother primarily based on some of the real life experiences of Greta Gerwig didn't work for me seems to be resonating with lots and lots of different people and not just because they have sisters or they are women who have very close relationships with their mothers and can see the the sort of uh, parallels there between what's on film and in their own lives i couldn't really connect with ladybird as a character i felt that she was uncomfortable and just not general nice company to keep for the entirety of the film that's not to say that i need a character that i like to watch an entire film it's just that i got very bored of being and unsympathetic uh, um being in her company for the entirety of it so didn't work for me you're yet to see it john i am yeah but as i said it's done all right it's just taken shy of four and a half million in the uk
2: number five
1: finding your feet which seems to be finding its audience how do you find it i haven't got round to watching this yet this is what they call a film for the uh, grey pounds um caters to older audiences and we spoke about earlier on about people going to the cinema And spending money tends to be the older audiences who aren't in tune with modern technology, who are not used to streaming services, watching films via iTunes or whatever it may be. They still go to the cinema. They are the most loyal customers you will get in in cinemas. And they are willing to buy a cup of coffee. They're not big spenders, but they're willing to come and see these films with actors who they grew up with and there are film uh, the people are are in this film Imelda Staunton um Joanna Lumley uh Timothy Spall there's a and that's a great cast it's a fantastic cast and these are stories that deal with relatable things that older generation can uh, you know can get to grips with and this deals with uh, a a marriage falling apart in its autumn years and trying to find your feet essentially again and and Mm. repurpose yourself in the world Playing, obviously, to a a great older audience there um, with a plethora of stars.
2: Number four. Game Night.
1: Yeah, this is an interesting one. (laughs) Starring Oscar-nominated Rachel McAdams um, as the female contingent of this film uh, along with Jason Bateman as well Uh, it's about a couple who hold a game night every week they love playing things like Trial Pursuit Cluedo those sort of things with their friends they all meet up once a week to play this game Uh, and one week they get involved in um, some real-life murder mystery and the game night is flipped on its head where people are actually being taken out left, right and centre. Oh, blimey. Uh, a better Jason Bateman comedy than many. I, I know Such that...
2: Such a shame he seems to be... You know, he has found some, some, some really poor roles to, he has. go going cuz I absolutely love him and everything from arrested development onwards he's you know it just 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 makes me laugh straight off but uh, yeah he, he he's not been picking him very well. No, <laughs> he doesn't
1: he t- this is the problem with comedy obviously it's it, it can be one end of the spectrum and the other and I think this is at the higher end of the spectrum for him. It's from what I understand, I like I said, I haven't seen it. Critically, it, it seems to be okay. And Rachel McAdams does great work in there as well. There is a film called The Gift, uh, which was directed by Joel Edgerton a couple of years ago, which Jason Bateman plays against type. He has that sort of sarky comedic edge to him but it's also a very serious role that you wouldn't normally see Jason Bateman Uh, like he's been doing in Ozark on Netflix on Ozark yes Mm. yes so um, I think that Jason Bateman is a very capable actor and it would be nice to see I know he's very good at comedy but I would like to see him move into more serious roles which he's obviously able to do as well game night number four there
2: number three Red Sparrow Jennifer Lawrence as a temptress spy
1: yes um, she is uh, a Russian spy, and we've had enough of those in the vicinity of recent weeks, interestingly, how <laughs> yes, this... The, uh, came... the,
2: the Salisbury connection
1: there. Yes, interestingly. Maybe how... they'll send her next time. Maybe they will. Maybe excellent. maybe it was her <gasps> that uh, poisoned uh, the chap and his uh, I would daughter die happy <laughs> um, interestingly enough this came out the same week that the uh, nerve agent was released in Salisbury uh, and I have to say it's not really done much for the attendance of this film Is it not? no not at all um, a very tough film based on a, a source novel um, I, I would say aimed at young adults but it's not at all really some brutal torture scenes in this film Jennifer Lawrence playing into a much more adult category than we've ever seen her before The uh, uncle of her character is played by Matthias Skernatz, who is a Belgian actor for some reason playing a Russian. It suffers that really weird thing of certain films that are based in the English language, but everyone's putting on an accent. So it sounds like a really terrible version of Allo Hello, which was a a comedy in the uk uh where everyone was based in paris wasn't it in good france morning. yeah good mooning um which was uh which is just weird for a big film i had the same problem with the book reader a few years ago where all the characters jeffrey rush and the young girl involved all spoke with these fake german accents and it just felt weird and i'd love to know how this plays to a russian audience and what what they think of it it's spurious stuff. Charlotte Rampling's in it as the head of the Red Sparrow Academy, in which uh, Jennifer, well, Jennifer Lawrence's character is a ballerina, uh, and she's the prima prima ballerina of this uh, particular troupe. And she breaks her leg in a performance, and she's no longer able to dance. She has to look after a mother played by Jolie Richardson, who is really incapable of looking after herself. And she is recruited by this Sparrow Academy and becomes the Red Sparrow, the ultimate spy. And she's sent to do various things. Her uncle is uh, some sort of KGB officer, quite high up in the rankings. And then it goes on, to say any more would spoil it, but that's the setup for the film. Doing okay, taking nearly five million in the UK, still at number three in its second week.
2: Number two. The greatest showman, which has divided critics somewhat, but is is definitely definitely making a hit in the cinemas. It's it's uh, uh, it's been on there for what eleven weeks now. Good heavens! And uh, some of my friends, quite a lot of friends have been seeing it. Absolutely love it, especially with their
1: kids. Hugh Jackman. Yeah. What do you think, Hugh Jackman? Um, song and Dance Man. I mean, like obviously known for being Wolverine primarily, but uh, he was Jean Valjean in uh, the Les Mis as well a few years ago, where he did a a great turn. Uh, he's a He did Broadway for many years as well. You know, he's a very, very capable singer. He sang at the Oscars. He really leads this film and it's good to see for 11 weeks a film at number two and taking so much money. This film was in the can for at least a year and a half to two years. They, they kept on pushing it back and pushing it back. And f- I had Fox representatives come and meet for me going, we've got this great film coming out on this date and then six months later, oh no, it's coming out this date now. And when those films keep getting continually... P- Push back. It's almost like gone off fish in a can. You know, it's not going to smell when you open that ring pull. But to everyone's surprise, when it was released on the twenty sixth Boxing Day, um, it was twenty sixth of December. It hit its audience. It's a PG-rated film. Not many films can probably attest to being a PG-rated film that appeals to all the family. Plays hard and fast with the real P.T. Barnum, who is uh, not as nice and as jovial as the film makes out. He uh, sets up the, the greatest show. He, he essentially gets a ragtag bunch of people to come and sing and dance. And it, I guess this was the... Um, yeah, a bit of a freak show, really. Yeah, yeah well, that's this is idea. this is the yeah. thing that kind of plays down, uh, the exploiting of those people. The real story is is far less rounded than this does. But it's got some cracking songs in there you know uh, by now it's stockholm syndrome everyone knows the songs back to back and they've heard them a million times everywhere it's on the radio it's become the new um everything i do i do it for you from uh, prince of thieves <laughs> or the new love is all around from notting hill you know it's that sort of earworm that's got into people's heads doing fantastic numbers uh, number two there the greatest showman
2: number one Black Panther the, top of the box uh, office top of the box office the first marvel film to to really feature a, a black protagonist indeed majoritively black cast uh, leading leading cast so uh, yeah that's it's 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 doing tremendous <laughs> it's doing tremendous work for the bame community what do you think Neil?
1: Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was good to see, even though I am not of black origin, I guess uh, my my roots can be traced back to well of the African con- continent to an extent. Uh, it was good to see someone of color on screen in a le- in a lead role and a majority black cast. Um, which, how
2: did it how did it work as a superhero? Film? As
1: a, as a superhero film, I think it still plays by majority of the rules. But m- by the end of the film, I knew exactly what why each character was there what their characteristics were and their motivation by the end of it. I think that, that gets lost in the shuffle in a lot of these big superhero films. Everyone felt like they had time to breathe on screen and I knew exactly what they were doing at any given point. The action was filmed in such a way I didn't get lost. I knew what was going on. It um, has a very interesting motivation for the the bad guy in the film and you actually feel some sympathy for them. It's not the bad guy wants to control the world and use this power to have dominance over everyone and create Whoa. evil. Yeah. None of that. Actually, <laughs> you feel sympathy for his motivations. Um, oh, that's excellent. you are slightly conflicted because it depends on where you sit on, on the fence on this one. Would you, this, there's this power in this land called Wakanda where the black Panther is the king. and, it is what you would use that for where you whether you would hide it from the rest of the world i had someone on twitter accusing me of being slightly anti-semitic and likening it to the nazis and uh, <laughs> the jewish community during world war Two. I, I i because i sympathized with the bad guy in this film apparently i was just as bad as the nazis and oh clearly yeah. clearly yeah so um i i was put in my place there and this, this person is a scholar so Good on him. Clearly, very, very wrong in this case. But Um,
2: uh, then they discover vibranium or something. Vibranium uh, is yeah, is 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 what they make uh, Captain America's shield out of. So that's the connection with the other the other superheroes.
1: And yeah, they're all going to turn up in a in a big ensemble piece coming Infinity War. Infinity War down the line uh which is then next month right pro- yeah heavens. 27th of april it's going to promise to bring all these characters together and some of them will die and oh. i think we already know some which ones will die the ones oh. that didn't sign on contracts um <laughs> many of them i'm die. not going to look that but a news no there? don't don't look that up um many of many of them do die in the source Jeremy material. Renner must have gone mustn't he uh he is, he's I mean, Hawkeye isn't he yeah um, spoiler I mean, he, he's probably gone yes <laughs> He wasn't really in 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 no, he's, he's for the obviously. most part. But yeah,
2: so but do you think? Um, so we've had Black Panther explaining the origins of that character. Yeah, um, it's kind of necessary to get all these ducks in a line before we get to Infinity War. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't know
1: why Black Panther was at the end of the line, but he is an unknown. He is an unknown quantity, really. When you talk about superheroes, the name Black Panther does not come to mind. Captain America comes to mind. Hulk comes to mind,
2: despite the fact he's been around almost as long.
1: Yes, that's that's understandable. You know the popularity of the superhero. Spider Man is one. Ant Man is actually one that I think is quite an interesting one. I, you know, I love Ant Man. I, 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 I like the film, but yeah. I, as, as a known quantity, I, I hadn't heard, heard of him before. No, him before. And same with Black Panther. It's understandable why some of these have come out at the, the tail. Well, we're end we're not
2: this. big uh, comic book geeks anymore, are we? So, no, that's true. Uh, we wouldn't necessarily come across them, but yeah, in terms of uh, general audience, um, no, I hadn't heard of Black Panther. Really. No,
1: um, but look, the, the, you're right. All these films are now out there. Everyone knows where they're coming from, their motivations and it will be interesting to see how that's brought about with infinity war and whether they do actually finally kill off some of these characters or magically resurrect them it's going to them. be
2: very difficult to keep track of them all in that i can just imagine the amount you know the amount of, 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 of a list characters you've got, got uh, in
1: there i'll tell you the running time is 2 hours 40 minutes
2: okay blimey so that's just about enough time for every, all of them to get a
1: line yeah pretty much um, but I, I do think it may suffer from the fact that they may get lost in the shuffle somewhere I think there's a part two coming I think this is like part one I don't know I'm not a massive superhero fan someone tell us email us at the usual sources and let us know that was the um, UK box office top ten for the week ending the 15th of March uh, I hope we gave you some insight into some of the things knocking around there that's uh, doing good business at the moment we're going to take a quick break now and we'll be back with our feature film Tampopo directed by Juzo Itar Hello, everyone. This is J.D. from the In Session Film Podcast. Each week, we review the latest from Hollywood, California. Well, yes, Brendan. We also give top three lists. Okay, yeah. Thanks again, Brendan. Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series or other interesting film related topics and even rants and raves of the week. On top of our main show, every Friday... You can also hear our extra film podcasts. Uh, You can listen to the In Session Film Podcast on... iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Listen to the In Session Film Podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat JD like a Cherokee drum. No, 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 no. That's not (laughs) how this works, sir.
0: And now, it's time for our main feature film...
1: And this week, it is Japanese film that we're going to be delving into, specifically Jizo Itami's Tampopo from 1985. We were going to play a clip, but there's no point in playing clips because we can't get subtitles across on <laughs> an audio format and you won't understand what's going on anyway. Um, do you want to give a bit of summary as to what happens in this film? Just the main narrative, and then we'll talk about the weird quirks later on. Indeed. So um, Tampopo follows the story
2: initially of uh, a young lady trying to make her, her way as a, uh, as a cook. In a ramen shop. It's a ramen shop. This is a, a traditional Japanese dish. They're very interesting. Not something I've I've had myself, but Neil's a, Neil's a, a dead shot on this stuff.
1: I'm a, I'm a foodie.
2: He's a foodie when it comes to Japanese I'm the one cuisine. that takes
1: photos of their meals and put them on Instagram. I'm one of those.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, we follow the journey of Tampopo as she is aided by her Western uh, um, cowboy style uh friends uh new friends who uh, pop in to see her on their way trucking back from some uh, some job they pop in say this <laughs> this the ramen shop isn't very good here we can help you turn it around and uh, we essentially follow that journey through the film but so much else goes on uh, apparently related and some apparently not to the main narrative and uh, it's really really interesting what did you think
1: i really thought this film was quite something and especially if i imagine what it would have been like for a 1985 audience as well it plays in a way that you have the main main narrative going through so you're following tampopo which um in english means dandelion that's the translation of that name tampopo young single mother through no fault of her own her husband died uh, she's uh, got a very hyperactive son who is bullied all the time by local people that runs this rundown ramen shop to make ends meet no one really likes the ramen it's frequented by some really dubious local cr- Yeah, businessmen. horrible men that are in there and these two guys turn up as john said these two truckers stop for some ramen to fuel up and uh, actually tell her her ramen's a bit rubbish. Ramen is something that American audiences would be very familiar with, but British audiences less so uh, because it's not really ubiquitous over here. You, you know, you don't really get that ramen shop. There's not a large Japanese uh, migrant population in the UK. Ramen is essentially uh, a dish consisting of noodles, in hot broth with and or meat or tofu or whatever on the top and then topped with sort of spring onions or scallions as the americans like to call them. a very flavorsome dish the the broth is the most essential part of the dish it's either made with miso if you're vegetarian or vegan or, or boiled bones so car- carcasses of uh, chickens or or pork bones and that's the most important part so much love and attention goes into making this broth um, it has to be made in a certain way, at a certain temperature. has to have certain things that happen to it, like skimming off the scum off the top. Not the bro- letting it boil. Not letting it boil. And if the if the broth is not good, the ramen won't be good overall. Um, the noodles also have to have certain due t- care and attention. They have to be cooked in a certain manner very quickly, in and out of the water, not le- left to you know swim in it for ages. Otherwise, you'll get a very watery broken noodle and it has to have some spring and bounce to it and a little bit of chewiness i guess to, to you know almost like al dente i would say when you you have uh, t- italian food there is also the the, the meat element to it so uh, there's some slices sea- of ham, ham or, 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 or turtle and, and yeah, and yeah this, there was various things wasn't yeah, there? yeah lots of lots of different things in this th- uh, that can go into it but it's kind of like a, a freestyle of what you can then put onto it and then obviously like i said spring onions on the top there's some garlic and some other bits and pieces it can be as simple or as complex as you want it to be but overall it's kind of like a hearty meal and uh, myself and John were watching a, a, a program uh, where uh, Anthony Bourdain went to Japan to Hokkaido to go and explore some of their food and it seems like ramen is the staple food of people who go out drinking you it's know of an a evening fast food kind yeah, of thing you yeah. know you'd,
2: instead we'd go for a, 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 a kebab, kebab or something on the <laughs> way home but yeah. you know the ramen seems to be much more that sort of thing in in japan and it was really interesting to see you know a modern documentary with with Anthony Bourdain um having a look around and going into this uh, ramen shop which was almost exactly like this one in Tampopo where where the, the, the process doesn't seem to have changed a lot in the intervening 30 years
1: no and there's obviously such a love for tradition and it's interesting how you said that the passage of time hasn't altered this process you know the japanese hold tradition very close to their heart and i think this is borne out in tampopo in the in the way that the food is constructed it has to be done in a particular manner and we follow Tampopo's story it's almost has a western feel to it where there's an issue in the town these two outsiders come in to come and help fix it and then we get this montage of these two guys one played by Ken Watanabe who plays the sidekick Gun but the the, the main guy is played by Tsutomu Yamazaki who plays Goro who is the main guy who, who wears a uh, almost like a cowboy duster hat yeah. or, and he never takes it off throughout the entirety yeah, of the there's even film. a wonderful shot of him in the bath he's still got the hat <laughs> on but that obviously plays into the western ideals of this and uh, western by means genre here um, it's been it's touted as a, a ramen western. This film. So these two outsiders come in, see there's a problem, fix, try and fix things up, and then turn things around by the end of the film. There's a montage in there of almost like a Rocky like montage of training up Tam Popo to make the best ramen, Yeah, so that she's physically fit enough to
2: to to put all the ingredients together and you know roll out the the, the noodles before she cuts them up and uh, various bits and pieces like that which yeah very it dips into a lot of different styles and 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 even genres of of movie making with you can see where some of the influences come from
1: it's very interesting absolutely and and it's um getting the gang together essentially it's like almost like raman has to have certain constituent pieces this film assembles albeit six men that all coach Tampopo to cook excellent ramen. They recruit a homeless uh, man who used to be a ramen master. A very old man. Bring him in and he has the most Wealth of expertise in there. They bring in a rich man's chef who makes the most excellent ramen. Who also gives his advice. Goro yeah, the noodles
2: were his speciality. They?
1: Oh, the noodles. There we are. Yeah. So they all brought. They all and they all focus on a certain part, don't they? One does the noodles, as you said. One does the broth, which is the um, the sensei, the the old master. Uh, one one do- does
2: the decoration yeah. of the of the actual shop and the layout.
1: Yeah, and then Goro does. I can't remember what general he does. motivation yeah. wasn't yeah. it? And, and, then, uh, and one and one even comes up with a special dish for tampopo to serve as well so they all play their part in coaching tampopo to make the best ramen available in her locale there i guess from a filmmaking perspective the narrative is quite straightforward the journey is quite straightforward we know what's going to happen by the end of this film there is no surprise there at all however how it
2: gets there is there's no, very, very strange odd, uh, meandering path we we start for example the the opening scene is in a cinema so uh we're sat there watching an audience watching us uh, and then this white besuited gangster and his white dressed lady friends come in surrounded by their gang of, of thugs or whatever, who then proceed to, to lay out a champagne dinner in front of them yeah, while a, they're watching the cinema. a
1: table laid out in front of them. Very
2: odd. And the the chap directly addresses the camera. So we break the fourth uh, wall immediately. Um, very unusual. Before he then gets distracted by a guy eating some popcorn, goes over and threatens him with death. <laughs> uh, if he continues doing that after the film has started. And then we join the truckers and we get into the main narrative. But we keep going back to this white-suited gangster and his his lady love all the way through the film, which appear to have no relation to the main narrative at all. You know, we have uh, we have them. Uh, you know, enjoying very Western delights. So they're in a in a nice hotel. They're having some some beautiful food, all being waited on. They're indulging in very well. There's, there's some quite graphic sequences. actually. Yeah, very erotic. Think, yeah, it? very erotic. And uh, you know, what I as a Westerner would consider quite un-Japanese behaviour um, in terms of what they how they're dressed, what they're doing, what they're eating, how they're behaving towards each other, and indeed towards other people. You know, they're very rude towards their their serving staff, um, you know, they have you know a great big bit of steak and uh, you know all that sort of thing, and they they seem to their entire lives seem to be in complete contrast. To Tampopo and her friends, and it seemed to have absolutely no no relation between the two stories, which is really interesting. But by the end, you uh, well, and it's never explicitly explained why they're why we're following these two other people. And
1: they never the two narrative strands never meet up. They're no. always separate. oh yeah,
2: there's no crossover, is there physically within no. the within the story? No. However, I took that to to have a lovely metaphor for the. Dulling down of, of, of Japanese tradition uh, into a more westernised society. You know, the way that, that people are aspiring to wear more western clothes, act in a more western way, uh, and how that could possibly be losing the, the the traditions of Japan in in terms of food, in terms of, uh, again, respect, talking to the uh, way they're treating people, um, dressing, everything. Um, is kind of being diluted by by Western influences. Mm. Uh, by the end of the film, the the, the white suited gangster and his uh, his uh, friend
1: we can call her a gangster's mole gangster
2: else. yeah end up um, you know in not the best place. Um, whereas Tampopo, having followed the, the traditions and and you know, given complete heart and soul into creating an authentic Japanese best tasting ever ramen and ramen shop is, is prospering. And I, I think I, I took that as quite a, a strong message from the film. Is oh, that's that an interesting
1: uh, one. I never really thought of that. Actually. Right. It's a really good Well,
2: question. it was all I could think of as connecting the two stories. Yeah. You know, we're, we're seeing them following a much more Westernized lifestyle yeah. and paying the price for it. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Whereas they are, you know, investing everything they can in their, in their free time and, Whatever, just just to help somebody else, and investing in this entirely traditional Japanese thing, they they are prospering.
1: Everyone around Tampopo, as you said, uh, her her sort of characters that move around Tampopo's character and that story thread. They are all kind help. They don't have to help Tampopo. No one's getting anything out at the end of this, but it's all about, I don't know, just trying to help someone out in need. Yeah. Whereas you're right, these these gangster, The gangsters are gangster all motivated from, by
2: wealth and greed. Greed
1: and, and, it, and indulgence. Yes, exactly. You know, those scenes uh, with the gangster that we cut to. So the main narrative goes along, and then when there is a scene end with the Tampopo strand, it will then cut to or see into the gangster or another skit so there are other things going on I I yeah, there
2: was a weird th- sequence where we we uh, I think like Tampopo walks walks out of the frame and somebody else on a bike whizzes past and then we inexplicably follow them and then they go around a corner and somebody else walks past and then we follow that person yeah. and then somebody goes up a walks past that person up a flight so we follow them up the stairs you know a completely disjointed sequence of connecting several completely Unconnected characters yeah. on this odd little journey, but which then takes us into a little a little flat where the the mother is on the floor of the flat dying. Her husband and two children are sat around the table uh, with the doctor and a nurse, essentially just watching her die. You know, it seems to be nothing they can do about it. Um, and the doctor's there, just just sort of waiting to to take the body away. Um, suddenly, um, I think one of the children says, "I'm hungry." and this brings this woman back to life she suddenly dashes to the kitchen gets up cooks dinner s- serves it to her family they start eating she dies on the floor <laughs> it's like her last meal you know she has she has only lived to deliver this this final meal to them and uh the father gets you know they all get very upset and the father gets quite angry because the children are, are slowing down eating and he says, no no no, you've must finish this your meal it's the last meal your your mother cooked for you while she's laying prostrate in front of them it's very, very odd indeed yeah
1: um, I, I think all of these are, are statements um on uh, consumerism and and, and westernisation, so and and also the human condition as well. So that particular example there, John. For me, Itami saying to me, "Women only serve to cook, and that is their sole function in life. Men are there to consume. Uh, women are there to look after and nurture." and nourish the family they are they have they, you know this not necessarily what atami thinks but what japanese society thinks yeah. and this was him absolutely lampooning that saying like this woman nothing will resurrect this woman and doctor a nurse will not resurrect this woman but her L- her the uh, thought of her cooking for her children <laughs> and her purpose her life. purpose in life is just to <laughs> nourish this family and the husband's not upset because she's dead and he's lost the love of his life he's upset because he'll have to cook the food now yeah that is that is, that is that's, which yeah, again is is a the
2: contrast head. to Tampopo's story, with mm. where she is is the the sole you know breadwinner and cook for her and her son. Yes, and her motivation to cook is just to make the best ramen and to and to make uh, make a living. Yes. Um, whereas, you know, you get the feeling for, through that little sequence, maybe that's a peek into traditional Jap- Japanese society where the the, the the lady is there to cook and, and not have any aspirations towards earning
1: money at yeah, all. Absolutely not. And, and, and all these little vignettes that pepper this whole narrative. So I would liken, if you've ever seen a Monty Python film, so particularly, I'm not saying, Life of Brian's probably a poor example, but The Meaning of Life or The... Uh, the Holy Grail. Yeah. You've got that main narrative that runs through, but then you'll also the just, camera just will dive pan off, off into <laughs> small skits. I think that's probably the best way to say it. Little comedy skits, little you know, little sequences that will make a point about something. Yeah. And Tampopo does that. So you have the main narrative there, and the camera, like you said, John, will just drift off somewhere, and then you'll have this complete sequence. It's almost like a Kentucky Fried movie, or if you've seen movie forty-three recently, there is a central film in there, but then you will just dive off into completely unrelated skits, or related skits, but seemingly unrelated at first glance. If you're not used to that, it can be a little bit sort of upsetting. You're wondering what the hell's Yeah, what's going on. Um, It's not a film that really commands a lot of attention. I think you can miss an awful lot of it and still get an idea of what goes on by the end of it. In terms of... uh, Let's go back to the gangster, because I don't think we've fully explored that... The gangster made me, f- uh, the gangster's story, his parts, his little vignettes, because he is a reoccurring character in these little skits that happen either side of the uh, narrative. It is, for me, all about consumerism. There is a sequence where, like you said, he's in a hotel room. He's having this champagne food brought to him. He, His gangster's mole, his bit on the side, shall we say, she has the most some of it was very uncomfortable to watch. So for example, he puts an upturned Pyrex dish on his lover's stomach on bed, uh, on the bed while she is naked uh, with live prawns drowning in brandy on there. And they're thrashing around on her stomach and she is extracting sexual pleasure from it. But then again, this plays into, I think a lot of Japanese culture where there is a little bit more sexual deviance than perhaps we're used to in British and American culture. There is a lot more acceptance for uh, sexual quirks um, and I, I think that's inherent in their culture, right? whereas we look at it going, that's strange. Yeah, I saw them.
2: I, I mean, I saw the the, the gangsters literally embracing d- d- otherwise, what, what, what would be otherwise taboo. Yes. So, you know, what they're doing with each other, what they're doing with food, yeah. what they're doing to, you know, to other people.
1: But, 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 but equally at the time, you know, some of this is not that far different from American stuff. So if we talk about Marlon Brando, in Last Tango in Paris, where he uses butter erotically in that scene. Is that any different than putting uh, cream on your partner and licking it off intimate areas? You know, um, maybe, the, yes. the brand, maybe the brandy. maybe the way he does it. Yeah, but the, maybe the brandy and the dr- <laughs> drowning prawns thing is a bit extreme. But I don't think there'll be any different yeah, than licking whipped cream off someone. I, or, I, I think the
2: point that the film was making was that. You'd never see Tampopo and the, her, her gentleman, who you know her love interest. There, I don't. I don't think you'd ever see them doing that. No, no. Uh, but the, I, the idea would never occur to
1: them. No, these. But I, I think these are two different segments of uh, Japanese society. You have the more younger society, as you said, uh, aspiring to be more westernised and more extreme and embracing more deviant qualities as well. Um, and the risks that come with that. So by the end of the film, you know, the gangster is shot to death. You know, that I think that is, as you said, is you, you follow this path and you take the risk of your yeah, downfall. Yeah, there's
2: a fairly clear message that, that you know, yeah, follow this alternative route at your downfall or at your peril really
1: or at least at your own risk there's a fantastically weirdly erotic I found it weirdly erotic weirdly erotic scene where the gangster is um, kissing his lover but what they're doing is not putting their tongues in each other's mouths they are passing a, a yoke between the mouths but it's Done no, this is an egg yolk an egg so yolk it's but it's done so a, yeah. so delicately uh between the two mouths it's a very strange thing to watch and then suddenly between the back and t- tonsil hockey with this uh yoke going backwards and forwards it eventually bursts in the lover's mouth dribbles down her mouth and she sort of orgasms as the as the uh, yolk bursts. and obviously it's all symbolic and everything else but th- th- there's been a long history of Uh, food and sex and eroticism I think of films like um, Le Grand Bouffe which is an Italian film uh, by uh, Marco Fieri and um, when I first watched this film, it's a 1973 film Italian film it's about uh, four men who one uh, who are all loved, they all love food, but they're all essentially the, the judge, uh, the the baker, the butcher, the candlestick maker. They all come from different parts of society. And they all decide to go off to a country house. They've saved up all their money. Some of them have more than others, but it doesn't really matter. They're all mates. And they go to the countryside and they decide to eat themselves to death. And they eat the most opulent, decadent food imaginable. And they spend five days or whatever it is just having a massive blowout in this house. And it's obviously not supposed to be realistic. They get prostitutes in. They live the most exuberant life that they can within those five days, knowing full well that they, they keep eating and they are sick and they keep eating and then they Crikey. you know it they're sick during sex. It's the most <laughs> extreme film that like extreme end of film. But they also get to the point where some of the the people that they're paying so they pay prostitutes to come in and have sex with them and they're also paying people to cook for them. This They have to eventually leave. This house becomes in such disarray through their um, bodily functions, shall we say, and God. and their distended stomachs and just everything. It, it, it really is a disgusting film to watch it's quite it's quite it's quite something le grand booth uh, by marco fieri is uh, definitely a, a, an interesting sister to tampopo but it also is a statement on society and consumerism and i think there's a lot of that in tampopo as well See, now you could draw that draw parallels between the the gangster story there
2: their their eroticism with food mm. and the ultimate unsatisfaction they find with that lifestyle compared to the completely non-erotic but more passionate pursuit of, of the perfection of the ramen in the main story with Tampopo, which which inadvertently leads to a romantic uh, interest and what you could argue would then become a, a far stronger personal relationship, both involving food, both involving uh, you know, some degree of passion, but on, on totally different Planes, just trying to work out how that how, how that those two stories could relate come together. Yeah,
1: definitely. I, th- I think there's a long history of food love and love in different ways. You can have the erotic love, but you can have a lo- love and a desire to create food. You know, when you create food with your hands, if you think of things like you watched, uh, like this is why street food is so popular because you can see it being made from scratch in front of you and and you know from my hands to your mouth is the most when you have a homemade meal someone has made from scratch it feels much more personal Mm. love and attention has gone into your food and you can feel that when you eat something rather than something that's been processed
2: that's why i squeeze my tea bags with my fingers
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh John, oh John! But yeah, there's a long history of not just ser- uh, not necessarily sexual love, but love and food. Yeah, and it's
2: all about relationships. Relationships, the, the food to you, but between you and the person who's cooked it for you.
1: Exactly, exactly that. And you think about Valentine's Day, where someone's cooked a meal for you, and, and not just it's it's the effort and the attention that's that's gone into that. The, the care. It's the
2: one atta- occasion of the year when Neil cooks for someone else.
1: No, I don't believe in <laughs> Valentine's Day. So there we are. <laughs> there we are. I'll put that out there. Um, but. I, I I also feel that the, 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 there's another track of uh, the gangster story where he goes to the, the seaside and there is a, like a nymph-like uh, lady there oh, yeah, who's fishing for she's well. fishing for oysters, isn't she?
2: Yeah, there's several of them. They're clearly the oyster fishers, and he and he sort of turns up and for some reason has enough power to uh, or status at least to sort of get his hands on one of them
1: yeah she comes she comes up out of the water almost like a mermaid like like a siren of sorts and he is so eager and so arrogant to to sh- take the oyster out of her hands and because he's so he's rushing to get, eat this oyster he's so looking forward to eat this fresh oyster he cuts his lip on the i think it's, is it a scallop or is it an oyster i think it's an oyster he cuts his lip on the shell the sharp edge of the shell yeah. and the blood starts coming down and he, and he mixes the blood in with the the oyster and he eventually consumes it and Feels the, the the love, but it's it's also I think that also speaks to the impatience as well of the younger generation. Yeah. You know, I want everything and I want it now. I, I think it's a really smart film in in the way that it kind of taps into different parts of society's uh, greed and wants and 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 the generational gap there. Tampopo and her fellow cohorts are obviously part of a different segment of society than this gangster, as we said, much more younger. Uh, much more arrogant, entitled, would you say, the, the, the gangster yeah. and the gangster's mole, oh, sort definitely. of a, like yeah. a different generation coming through and losing that traditional values coming through. So a little bit of her history around ramen. Ramen kind of comes out of Chinese cooking, in fact. Post World War Two, as a means of sustenance, it became much more popular in Japan, and it sort of became their sort of things, incorporating it with seafood. And we see the rich man whose life is saved in a restaurant. He invites Tampopo and her friends over to his rich mansion and his personal chef, and they cook sea turtle. And if anyone's a vegan or a vegetarian, out that I would not watch this sequence. I had to look away at that I point. Just, they I just, they,
2: uh, yeah, that was that wasn't very wasn't very pleasant. They, yeah, they they butchered a, a turtle on on
1: screen. Screen, us, yeah. yeah, live on screen. It wasn't particularly but I suppose if you eat meat, that's where your meat comes from. You know, an animal dies for your food, so mm. you know you you see the whole process from beginning to end. By the end of this film, I really, I really wanted ramen. It made me very hungry. Uh, <laughs> by the end of it, I, 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 I love the care and attention that goes into the process. I love the the, the central story. That some of the skits didn't work for me, and we won't talk about all of the skits because we want to leave something for you to kind of run into yeah and think
2: about afterwards because some of them you 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 just can't work out how they're um (laughs) you can't work out how they relate to the main story if indeed they do you know so um but they're clearly there for a reason and um i think it's going to take us a little bit more more pondering to 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 come up with those completely Um, but there's some some absolutely wonderful wonderful visual sequences in there i mean when the when the girl uh saves the uh the 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 rich businessman from choking mm. this is she's the only one who seems to know how to do anything about it after the staff at the restaurant that he's eating in attempt to uh, remove the the blocked food with a hoover yeah. uh, which i thought was was hilarious you know yeah. and unique I, isn't it I just think this is you know it's, it's it's billed as a comedy but i think it, it, i think that rather does it a disservice it's a lot more thoughtful and meaningful than uh, you know than just calling it a comedy which often you know you can take a lot more lightly whereas this this does really does require a, a bit more thought
1: i kind of really really like the the different way of approaching food that the japanese have there's you know rather than barking at someone saying this is burnt this doesn't taste right they actually talk to the food in some instances in the same way you talk to plants to help them grow well some people do they talk to the food they will it to be good you know there's some sort of mystical and spiritualness around around food and there's there's a point where one of the masters uh, apologizes to the the food before he consumes it and I thought, that's kind of touching in a way. You know, it's something that we lose in Western society is is this gratefulness for this food. It's like, even though there is no consequence of me talking to my food, realistically. (laughs)
2: It's just to get you to think about where it's come from and, and, you know, being A bit more appreciative about it, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so it's very fascinating, that sequence. Again, it seems unrelated to the rest of the film because we never see the characters again, but there's a Mr. Miyagi kind of sensei of... Ramen sat at the counter and he's delivered this dish and he is basically teaching his his young apprentice how to how to eat it properly and it's a whole ritual and this goes on you know this sequence must be 5 minutes of the film uh, th- those characters are unrelated but it's it, to the to the to the main protagonist entirely you know we never see them again they're just there to get us to understand in what uh, seriousness that the, the, you know Japanese people can, can take just eating ramen and no. how how um, this one dish can symbolize and have so much meaning to uh, to everybody and it's uh, it's really interesting it does help to bring you into context as to you put your mind uh, understanding how and why a good ramen served well uh can, you know, really make a make a big difference to people.
1: What did you think in terms of cine- cinematography, John? This is why I brought you on here, not for not for your views on the narrative. I don't oh, care I about see. that. Well, I want I want to know way. about your I want to know about the shots. I want to know about what what did you think about the production side of it? You know, for and bearing in mind obviously when it was filmed as well 1985.
2: Yeah, 1985. So, um This is not uh, so at at a period when uh, cinema was not at its most experimental uh, worldwide. Really, I suppose this this the story of Tampopo is told mainly fairly straightforwardly in terms of 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 camera work, lighting, etc. Staging is, is quite interesting because they use a lot of quite restricted physical environments, so the, the ramen shop is quite tiny, so they've only got sort of two or three shots they can use at any one point um, of characters, so, you know, your wide shot and you a couple of close-ups and um, you choose what the close-ups are of, and sure. that's, that's kind of it, you know, Um there was some interesting lighting at certain points. There's some some absolutely beautiful compositions within this film. Um, I thought the sequence where they find the, the old homeless man to start oh, with. Oh, yeah, right? that, that sort of roused. There's one yeah. shot that, that goes on for ages, right. and you're, you're not, you remember, they're on the steps, and there's some beautiful lighting on you. And you just find yourself, and you, I suddenly realise, God, I've been watching this shot for ages, and you, you, you haven't noticed, because um, the composition was so beautiful, and there's um but you some... you
1: notice these things more than the average, average oh yeah hour, i suppose i can switched on to yeah, it a bit more yeah. but
2: but i do always find that as a as a a trick um or a, an indicator of whether a story is working for me is sure. whether i do notice these things if i if i don't notice them i know that the story has worked you know you've invested in the story enough to not notice the technical things but with this i did make a, a special effort to uh, to take a look at it there's some wonderful wonderful lighting at the end i mean it's 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 kind of it's kind of obvious there's not there's not a massive amount of subtlety when it comes to the camera work the the composition the lighting this it's all it's all done relatively straightforwardly but quite effectively you know there's a nice sequence at the end where she finally gets the ramen correct and good enough and the whole sequence of her making it and them trying out different versions is all shot. It's all a bit sort of dark. There's lots more shade in the shot. When she finally gets it, it's like the sun comes out outside. Mm. You know, <laughs> suddenly the the room is bright and illuminated. And, it, and it's a very obvious kind of thing to do with your lighting to to imply that about a story. But but actually, it worked. You know, surprisingly well. And you know, not everything has to be subtle. All no, the time. no, and, c- and
1: considering the beginning of the film was actually quite dark and rainy and night time yeah. and everything else and you know it's a very dark place the shop is very dark as well and then when it's you know renovated it becomes once again like you said this li- really will- well lit Sort of scene where everything's whiter. Everything starts to suddenly get brighter at mm-hmm. the end, and it's brighter for her and her son's life, mm-hmm.
2: brighter for the shop and the and the general environment, you know, because they've created this wonderful ramen shop which all of the locality are enjoying, and it's bringing people together, and and you know everything's going well at the end, and the, the, you know just the fact that they've you know it's like they've opened the opened the uh, iris a, a stop or two everything's just a bit brighter and and it it is obvious and you do notice it but that that's not a necessarily bad thing you know sure. i think you know it really does help you to see the the obviousness of how she our our uh, our, our protagonist uh, played by Noboku Miyamoto um our protagonist you you know you really see uh, very obviously the the difference all this has made to her life, and this suddenly overcoming this big this big turning point of getting this ramen right. you know everything is brighter in there in the shot physically and uh, I thought it would work really well, actually a really, really fascinating film. The director.
1: Um, Jizo um, Itami.
2: Yeah, it was was married to uh, Nobuko Miyamoto at the time when they filmed this, and I I wondered if this had any um, influence, perhaps, on some of the lines. I mean, the, the the lots of different characters kept on referring to how beautiful she was, you know, <laughs> and she would make this little blushing smile, and uh, yeah, she's a, a, a nice enough looking yeah, yeah, looking yeah, lady, but yeah. uh, beautiful um. One yeah that that was kind of interesting, and I wondered if there was clearly that there was clearly an affection towards the main character which you you know which you needed which i you think the story heard. needed it it warranted um, it definitely yeah but i I wondered if that was easier for um me to do because (laughs) because he clearly already felt something for
1: her clearly clearly yeah now in terms of the print that we watched uh, we watched a version of the film uh, which has been remastered in 4k uh, and put out on the criterion label so criterion if you're not aware of are a film distribution company who go back look at Revered works and some modern works as well, and put them in the most amazing print available to mankind in Blu ray and some DVD formats as well. Um, they have extensive notes and uh, supplements on all of the DVDs uh, that you could possibly wish for, especially if you're a fan. It's really the collectors' collectors' of these sorts of films and not necessarily just weird out the way films there are some mainstream films in their collection as well I thought that for a film filmed in 1985 it looked particularly clear sharp and and beautiful you could really see things like the globules of fat floating on the top of the ramen you know it was that clear that you got a a sense of how unctuous these meals were what did you think of like the actual print and the composition of the the pictures,
2: uh yeah, I thought it was very nice you could you d- yes the the sharpness and definition were were absolutely fine they'd clearly done a good job uh rescanning the original um, there there was you could i mean from a technical point of view, you could tell when they changed film stocks or uh using different cameras or whatnot. Some of the exterior scenes, or uh, you know, some of the cutaway shots, where there was a there was a bit of a a hue change in the film stock there. But um, I guess for the time you would have seen that at the time. Yeah, the time limitations—you didn't have things
1: like grading or anything else like that, would you? Be surprised? No, they they do a thing called first light, which is when it goes
2: through the when you when you've exposed a a film celluloid, it goes to the lab, and the lab make a first light print, which is how they think the color should look because they are in control of that when it when you when you develop the print you have control over all of those elements um you know color saturation density etc um and they do a the first light print and then right. depending on the, the the feedback from director audiences bits and pieces like that they then print the rest with the with the final right. um grade. so actually it, it's not as precise as as grading Uh, we have now with the computer um, but they have always been able to adjust
1: oh i never knew that i never knew that i thought it was all dependent on lighting and apertures and not all the rest of it no no quite quite a lot
2: can be done and this is physically with the chemicals uh, at the development
1: process stage that's fascinating that's that's really interesting to know i i felt that some there were some moments where the um clearly where the camera movements lost that sharpness of picture and you had slight bits of blur in the picture it's mostly static shots or very slow moving yeah it's it quite
2: you... a lot of well it's, it's majoritively on tripod i think isn't it there's only a few moving shots in the whole there was,
1: film there was a, that sequence of the old lady in the supermarket oh it's weird
2: yeah there's <laughs> really weird this old. for some reason we go into a supermarket and follow this old lady as she tries to steal a load of stuff um or at least she's not stealing it she's just Fingering stuff, so yeah. she gets a biscuit and sticks her fingers. She gets some cheese and she sticks her fingers in it. So,
1: but they're, they're all fa- they're all quite fanciful foods. Really like odd. she squeezed this uh, round of uh, camembert or something, brie yeah. or something, and, and ruins it by putting her thing. She squeezes a peach to the extent where it slightly bursts as well. Yeah. Um, uh, and then I, she's I wasn't chased, sure chased around was. the entire so- supermarket. Yeah, but that's
2: all shot handheld, and uh, you know, it, it, which made a bit of a jar to the rest of the rest of the film. I thought. I mean, there were some other sequences where the camera was was handheld but this was this was all one and it was all you know just a bit wobblier than than the rest of it um and i wasn't quite sure what the motivation for that was or you know for even for that sequence i couldn't that i had no idea how that related
1: to the to the the rest of it so i think i I think it's quite open to interpretation yeah. that one well I should be interpreting that for some time well I, I have views on <laughs> it that perhaps it's like the much older generation trying to sabotage newer types of food so like oh. the cheese and stuff Like it's like anti-consumerism it's almost like an anarchist kind of like I'm ruining your, your yeah, yeah you will
2: you will give this up and go and make yeah. some ramen young man yeah
1: and, and yeah and this is the shunning of the new new wave of new technology because it's quite a modern supermarket it had large fridge units and that sort of thing and it's kind of like, it's all women coming in going i'm gonna mess up all your food and you're not gonna be able to sell it so it's like quite an anarchistic streak in there but yeah this film like i said it has lots of different seg- segments in it that are much really open to interpretation so to wrap up our thoughts on tampopo for today john your final thoughts and then a grading uh, of five stars half stars are applicable okay well
2: so tampopo very interesting uh traditionally it seems according to the film uh men would cook the ramen uh, and this is the story of a, a struggling lady um and her son who are trying to cook it uh the best they can i thought it was absolutely fascinating um i had no idea what it was all about or where it was going uh for 90% of the film actually um <laughs> you could you could guess where it was uh where they were going to end up but how they were going to get there was was a a, a truly un uh, predictable journey with all these little asides and everything. I think I'd probably give it uh, four out of five.
1: Four out of five. Yeah. No, that's, that's yeah. Quite...
2: No, it was really fascinating. And the more, it's one of those films. The more you think about it, the more you can get out of it. Um, and purely because I, I've I've not been exposed to much Japanese cinema in general, it was all the more interesting for me. And then this as an examination of. Japanese, but uh, this particular part of Japanese culture, um, I thought was really fascinating, and just just the way it was all constructed, well, would, would would be considered new and interesting now. So
1: the fact that it's 1985 and they were doing that then, yeah, brilliant. I think it's really heartening to hear you come away with such a strong reaction and a, and a pleasant reaction to this film.
2: Oh yeah, I'd ha- I'd happily watch that again now. It was it really was that interesting.
1: Okay. That, that's that's really interesting because, as you said, you're not exposed to this sort of stuff. You know, if you were sat on your bum, uh, flicking through Netflix, and that came up, that would not be your first pick out of those things that are offered on a plate to you. I'd, I'd assume, am I right? In yeah, no, that absolutely,
2: yeah, no, I I, I am. Uh, you know, the antithesis of you when it comes to to um, exploring films is that you know, because I have, I, I generally speaking have less time to to spend watching films. Sadly, mm. um, I tend to pick things that I'm are going to be safer you know that i you're familiar with uh, that i'm familiar with yeah exactly and i I, i'm not quite as adventurous as 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 i'd like to be but yeah you you show me this and i i think i'm going to try and deliberately see some films that i i wouldn't pick off the list next
1: time yeah and i guess this is my this is my whole shtick isn't it that i'm trying to push People and, and and open up doors and they don't have to be daunting films you could watch tampopo without being scholarly about it at all you could watch it and take something away from this film at the end of it and i think there's su- such a richness to this film as well and as you said that there are things in this that you're not used to in your hollywood conventions and the things you've seen in the english language you know that i think gives you a different perspective on filmmaking and and, and film in general and you you can certainly apply that to other things that you've seen and, and you can i would look at other films involving food now that with a much more critical eye and i'll probably use tampopo as a reference point to that game well i actually i saw this japanese film from 1985 called tampopo Did, it was about that, ramen. Was done that already yeah it, it was brilliant and, <laughs> and 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 this you know that's that's my touchstone for it for myself i i i kind of I, I let it brew for a little bit i i really liked it but i felt a bit uncomfortable with some of the scenes of animal torture in there uh i you know i'm a meat eater i i live and die by that sword and i think that's something that i'll have to reconcile at some point uh the sea turtle uh being killed on screen not particularly pleasant um and also the live prawns being thrashed about on a uh, lover's chest and drowned in brandy uh, was also not particularly pleasant to watch. Um, however, as as a film as a whole, as it brewed in my head, I love the the niceness of the Tampopo storyline. That you yeah, know, there's a like very
2: a positive vibe to the whole thing. Really actually.
1: positive vibe. It's really homely vibe. The uh, the the two truckers who uh set the ball rolling to help Tampopo out to improve her ramen shop. There's a sort of uh, slight love interest going on with Tampopa but it's never really made clear from the start. You know, no, it just as seems opposed like opposed
2: to the to the to the white-suited guy, yeah. who, for whose, you know, physical uh, b- affair is going on, you know, very explicitly, the uh, Tampopo and uh, uh, Gun—is it the other
1: one? Gun, uh, Gun, no, Gun, and um, the other guy who is. In, falls in love with her eventually um, goro oh, goro that's right that, that, um, it's never made inherently clear that he actually he's just helping her out he's, there's never like oh i 'm going to help her out and she's going to fall in love with me it's kind no, of, feels n- very organic it doesn't seem any end.
2: any intent on uh, on either of their parts to, to, to that to start with and it, it develops completely naturally but it but it never reaches a, a point where you know that it becomes sort of graphic or obvious you know you, you just see their relationship sort of blossom. In a, in a completely natural way it's really the, the, nice there
1: seems to, to be a real sweet sweetness and innocence around this whole thing as well in comparison yes. to the other strands um Tampopo is a very wholesome innocent woman um you know she feels a little bit set upon at times but ultimately it's uh, there's always there's, there seems to be an awful lot of good around that whole storyline that goes through this whole film a particular highlight for me was the, the sequence with the homeless people at night time um in that hymn-like chorus singing into the night. Yeah, they do a lovely
2: talking to the camera uh, bit as well in that as well, where um, the old man is talking to uh Tampopo um explaining about the, the passion he has for for uh, making ramen etc and it's delivered to the camera so it really you know really sort of takes you takes you by the scruff of the neck and gets you to to listen to what he's yeah, saying Yeah, exactly and, and, it feels like you're yeah, being delivered a sermon
1: and it's very personal as well um so that that, that was a particular highlight for, for, for this film um for me for my grading for this film i will also have to give it a very high four out of five stars so that was our film tam popo from 1985 by juzo itami we'll be back after this final message hi everyone this is tim costa i'm hermano da silva and this is walter vinci and together we are the first time watchers podcast each week we choose a movie to review that none of us has seen watch it together and then discuss these movies could be new or old or on our list of shame
0: And you don't have to worry about us going on and on about this and that and the other. And, oh, look, no, no, let's no, no. talk stop, about stop, this stop, minutiae stop. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Shut up, shut up. I wonder shut who up. the God damn it, I shut up. I think
1: that's enough.
2: Oh, my God. Go by the They are the Holy
1: Trinity, which are the first-time watchers. Hamano, Tim, and Wally. Hamano is the MVP of that show, and there's a an in, little in-joke there. Um, and they go and watch films for the very first time, as the uh, title would suggest. Their podcast uh, consistently every week, unlike mine. However... It's now on to our final straight. So we're on to our recommendations uh, on the three major platforms uh, of streaming. We'll go with Netflix UK. Uh, John, if you want to go with your Netflix UK recommendation, it may not be available across the world on other Netflix platforms, but it's certainly available in the UK.
2: Well, just uh, dropped onto Netflix over the last week or two was uh, Hellboy, which uh, might not seem the the most obvious choice from all of those that are available out there because the Guillermo del Toro the director connection to uh, The Shape of Water which of course won uh, best picture at the Oscars so um, yeah Hellboy is is on Netflix uh, the story of this uh, giant red Monster kind of devil character um, played by yeah something like that played by uh, Ron Perlman and his lovely uh, kindly professor John Hurt who who discovered him when he was a baby and they 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 kind of go through this tumultuous relationship where uh, Hellboy is uh, part of a sort of supernatural crime fighting unit and they come up against this big baddie who is planning something awful which has some link to hellboy in his past all the while his uh love interest played by selma blair is uh you know also has some sort of ability we're not really sure about and uh, so there's there's various different levels on all of this it has your usual kind of superhero supernatural thing going on so yeah so that's
1: hellboy uh, an interesting uh, romp. Um, for my recommendation, I will have to go with the film that we mentioned earlier. This is pretty much available across the whole of Netflix internationally. And that is Alex Garland's Annihilation, starring Natalie Portman, Tessa Thompson, Jennifer Jason Lee, and Oscar Isaacs. It is a story of a woman who goes into uh, an area called The Shimmer to discover what happened to her boyfriend slash partner who came back out of the shimmer a year ago and is not quite the same she is a microbiologist and this is all about the way that the elements in the earth are made up and how they interact with each other. And to say any more, that would uh, be a massive spoiler. It's an intelligent science fiction film, touches of uh, War of the Worlds, uh, Under the Skin, uh, and a little bit of Avatar in there as well, and favourable bits of Avatar in there as well. Beautiful world building, big, big budget. Shame that it's on such a small platform. But well worth your time if you get around to watching it. That is Annihilation. For my Amazon Prime UK subscribers out there, my recommendation is actually a bit of a weird one this week. So it's a film called English English. And it's an Indian language film starring Sri Devi, who unfortunately uh, died uh, not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a bastion of... Indian cinema. She was one of the few actresses who could actually hold her own as part of a film's billing, and people would go and flock to see purely because she was in there. She would need no male counterparts necessarily to pull a film through, and she could do it on her own. She was also in a film called Mom, uh, which came out two years ago as well, which also sort of a renaissance for her as an actress, primarily uh, in her prime and late 70s, uh, mid 80s, and early 90s. Sort of drifted away and did important things, I'm sure, like motherhood and then came back to the fold and made some recent films sadly died of a heart attack in um Saudi Arabia, I believe, a, a few weeks ago at a, quite a young age as well. This, so English of English is uh, the story of a middle-class woman who is not proficient with the English language and somehow overcomes them. Um, so uh, this, this was her comeback after 14 years in the wilderness. My BBC iPlayer recommendation is up there for at least 10 days. Uh, is Clouds of Sils Maria, directed by Olivia Esaias, uh, starring Juliette Binoche, uh, Chloe Grace Met. And, of course, Kristen Stewart, who has become a bit of a muse for Olivier Assayas. Uh, They joined up together in Personal Shopper, which was one of my favourite films from uh, a year just gone by, Um, also available on Netflix and well worth a watch. Uh, Klaus Sils-Maria follows Kristen Stewart as the personal assistant uh, to Juliette Binoche And Juliette Binoche plays a movie star and she's acting in a stage play that's been going on for many years and is suddenly told that she is no longer needed and a young upstart in the form of Chloe Grace Moretz will be taking over her part. Christian Stewart does a fantastic work here, once again breaking out of her twilight mold that uh, perhaps she would have been beleaguered with if she didn't go for more challenging fair and it's a similar trajectory that I think we're seeing with Jennifer Lawrence and certainly something that Robert Pattinson has also done. Does uh, she
2: uh, does she smile at all in this she film? She
1: does not really smile, no oh, there's no, no really good reasons to smile in this film. I see. There's some beautiful photography For you or for, for, the, for, the, for uh, the audience? F- for, for the audience generally, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there's some beautiful photography of uh, mountains here and some clouds as well there's some beautiful aerial photography as well I think it's a really well captured film and a thoughtful film and a pensive film and it's, de- it's definitely one that I would highly recommend. So it's Klaus of Maria. It's on the BBC iPlayer to to watch. To go out there and watch it. John, thank you very much for guesting on the show today. Oh, it's been
2: my absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Uh, where can people find you? What can where can they where can they hire your services? Uh, where can they listen to you? Twitter on?
2: <laughs> oh well, um, I've I have a website. It's fryfilm.com. dot uh, You can find me on the Twitter and the Instagram at fryfilm. Or one word, and if you search for Fry Film on YouTube, you can find some of my various uh, interesting and not so interesting uh, videos on uh, equipment, filmmaking, uh, and some of the stuff we have done for clients.
1: You've also got a very popular account that you're not telling everyone as well. So, what's your other uh, 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 alias as well on the internet?
2: Oh, uh, well, due to my uh, my reputation as a Steadicam operator, um, I am at the Steadicam Man on Twitter and uh, uh, Instagram. And uh, I'm Cam Operator UK on the YouTube, which um, seems to be proving quite popular um, thanks to a couple of articles I've written for a couple of the trade magazines recently.
1: Okay. Um, all these details, including recommendations and John's uh, contacts, will be in the show notes just below. So if you're on your iPhone, if you touch the uh, album artwork and just push up on it, you will see all the extensive notes down the bottom there. Ooh. No good if you've got to this point, of course, because um, you would have already listened to the entire thing without knowing which bits to skip to. However... I want to say thank you very much for listening today. Uh, we'll be back with an undecided film for our next podcast. Ooh. But rest assured it will be something equally as uh challenging and out there and something that will help you explore the world of film that you may not have considered before. I want to say thank you to everyone who's kept in contact with us, supported us, especially the guys at all the podcasts that we've uh, played their trailers of today. You can listen out for me. I will be appearing on the Atlantic SC podcast in a few weeks time to talk about a few films that came out recently uh, alongside jason and lee hopefully one of those two guys if not both will be guesting on the show as uh, soon as well um, you can contact me in the usual ways at film seekers on twitter facebook.com forward slash film seekers or Drop us an email, hello at filmseekers.com. If you like photos, you can also follow us at Instagram. That's filmseekers, all one word. I want to say thanks to Bo from Big Numb for giving me the music to play us in and out. And that all comes from the album from Monkey Came Man from Man Came Me. That's available from all good MP3 sites and on iTunes. And we want to end on our last line for today. And it comes from Sir Ben Kingsley. Don't forget the Serbit. And this is probably his most iconic role Uh, 1982's Gandhi and he ends with the line there have
2: been tyrants and murderers and for a time they can seem invincible but in the end they always fall think of it
1: always thank you very much for listening today and goodbye goodbye
0: This episode has ended, but your film journey doesn't have to. Head over to FilmSeekers.com where you'll find more reviews, ideas and news. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. Why not connect with us and let us be part of your film-seeking adventure?